Saturday night, August the 6th, 2016. I'm Walden. Patricia will join us in 30 minutes after Fibber McGee and Molly's show. Tonight we're going to look back upon the ending of World War II. So we're going to pick out a Fibber McGee and Molly show that relates to the war effort. The Scrap Drive, 1942. Then Patricia will join us for a while. And then after that, we got some special coverage for Mutual. That's, well, a good chance you might have not heard it before. So we're going to do that for tonight's offering. But first, our prayers. Dear Lord, thank you for all the wonderful friends we have out there and family. Thank you for the listening audience and the staff. Look after all our needs, Lord. Those of us who are going through health challenges or financial difficulties or emotional or spiritual or a loss of a relationship. Put your loving arm around each one of us, Lord. Bless the station. Help us do well, Lord. Look at our allies around the world. Bless each one of them, Lord. Have us do your will. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright. Here's Fibber McGee and Molly and the Scrap Drive from 1942. MDF Fibber McGee 420 unloading jump can't enter one Friday night. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's self-polishing glow coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with songs by the King's Men and music by Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Great Day. human nature to put things off. But what about that job of cleaning and polishing your car? Have you bought your can of Johnson's car new yet? Have you had the thrill of seeing a new car pop right up before your eyes as if you had rubbed Aladdin's lamp? Maybe that sounds a little exaggerated, but I know you're going in for a surprise the first time you use car new. It's so easy to use for one thing because it cleans and polishes in one application, does two jobs at the same time. Carnew is a liquid. You massage it gently over the finish, and when it dries to a powder, you wipe it off. And there stands your car with its almost forgotten showroom shine. Now, if you want to protect that shine for a longer time and save on your car washings, you add a coat of wax. But first, do that double job of cleaning and polishing with Johnson's Carnew. Spelled C-A-R-N-U. It's the easy, labor-saving way to keep up the finish of your car. They say 
a well-groomed woman gives her tresses a hundred strokes with a hairbrush every night before retiring. And it must work, too, because McGee's horse, Lillian, is simply radiating charm and beauty these days. And here in the garage, giving their handsome hay burner the brush off in a nice way, we find Fibber McGee and Molly. My, doesn't her coat shine beautifully, McGee? Mm, it oughta. I got a Charlie horse in my arm from currying her. <laughs> Charlie, let me introduce you to Lillian. Lillian, this is Charlie. <laughs> you two horses ought to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta watch that, Lillian. You almost missed your cue. <laughs> Isn't she sweet? Look at her wag her tail, McGee. She's happy. In horses, Mrs. McGee, that ain't happiness. That's flies. Ah, <laughs> oh, hold still, you big corn cruncher. Hey, Molly, haven't we curried her long enough? Oh, I think so. And she looks lovely, too. Though a little fat, I'd say. Yeah, she's hippie, but happy. <laughs> Hand me her blanket, will you? Kind of a draft blowing through here. You know, I don't think this blanket is big enough, McGee. Her legs must get awfully cold. Well, what do you think we ought to do? <laughs> She'd look awful silly in long underwear. Well, she does need a bigger blanket, though. Ah. Yes. Mother's it a baby that's told, doesn't she? Wudgy, wudgy, wudgy. Yeah. Oh, quit talking baby talk to her, Molly. <laughs> Next thing you know, she'll be wanting me to sit on my lap and listen to the three bears. Her to sit on my lap. <laughs> Who's that? It's Mrs. Uppington, I think. Ah, yes. I should have recognized that sweet voice. <laughs> I hear it in my dreams. Every time I eat too much lobster salad. <laughs> now, listen, she isn't so bad, McGee. She's just afflicted with too much money. <laughs> old Dr. McGee could cure that affliction with one rousing game of poker. What do you say we have the old... Hello, Mrs. McGee, are you there? Out here in the garage, Abigail. Now, be nice, dear. Okay, I'll kiss her hand and curtsy. And if the old man. Oh, moves, hello don't... there, Abigail. Oh, how do you do, Mr. McGee? How is Mr. McGee? <laughs> Hi, Uppy. Get away from me, you big ox. I haven't got any sugar. Please, Mr. McGee. I did not come here to our Oh, he didn't sugar. mean you, Abigail. He was talking to Lily. <laughs> oh. oh, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, have you met Lillian, Uppy? Lillian, dear, this is Mrs. Abigail Uppington, the big splash in the finger bowl set. I'll be shake hands with the... I mean, I'd like to have you meet our adopted daughter, Lillian. Oh, Lillian and I have met Mr. McGee, and I think she's very, very charming. Oh, I love horses. In fact, I was quite a horsewoman in my day. They used to say I rode like a centaur. Like a what? A centaur. That is a mythological figure, Mr. McGee. Half man, half horse. Oh, really? Well, which half... McGee. <laughs> Won't you come in the house and have a cup of tea? Oh, thank you, no, my dear. I just stopped by to ask you a favor on behalf of the Wistful Vista Reclamation Committee, of which I am chairwoman. Ah, uh, Uppy, you're such a confirmed chairwoman, it's a wonder you weren't born with four legs. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mr. McGee. Uh, what is the Reclamation Committee, Abigail, and what are they going to wreck? 
<laughs> well, we are putting on a campaign, Mrs. McGee, asking citizens to look through their homes for any material which might be useful to the government in this emergency. Oh. Old metal, paper, rags, all that sort of thing. Mm. Oh, here, here's a folder about it. Okay, Eppie, but I don't think we got much of that kind of stuff. McGee, how about the hall closet? <laughs> You think there might be something in there? I have a sneaking suspicion that we might find an ounce or two that we might spare. Uh, what do we do with it, Abigail? Oh, just pile it up outside. I shall have our truck call for it at four o'clock. Well, we'll get it right, right away, Uppy. And we're about through with Lillian anyway. Uh, <laughs> I must say, you keep her looking very well. I tell you, we curry and brush her for two hours every day, Abigail. You see how her coat shines? Oh, yes, there is nothing like it, Mrs. McGee. Personally, I brush my hair at least an hour a day. Well, some horses need more care than others, Uppy. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> Mr. McGee, I am not a... Uh, well, goodbye, Mrs. McGee. Did I say something wrong? Oh, no, you just called her horse is all Nothing to be offended about She should be offended about that It's Lillian that ought to be hurt Hey, Lillian <laughs> Yes, does daddy zitty baby sink nasty old McGee. woman huh? Oh, <clears throat> well, let's get out that closet, Molly And get up. government folder Abigail gave us, McGee. Yeah? Listen, it says, in our attic, cellars, backyards, and basements are waste materials that can help make ships, tanks, guns, and ammunition. Oh. Salvage now for victory. Well, come on, McGee, let's get busy. Okay. I'll be glad to get that closet cleaned out. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> oh, okay, uh, open her up. No, you open it. <laughs> No, no, you open it. I opened it the last time. Yeah, but you can jump out of the way quicker than I can. Well, 
Okay. Here goes. Well. There, you see? No cause to be alarmed because... Look at that, will you? Well, there ought to be plenty of stuff in here for the government, Molly. Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, there's an old aluminum coffee pot. We can give that to the government. No, but that's what I use for camping trips. Well, tap a tree and drink maple syrup. <laughs> this goes to Uncle Sam. Aluminum is a very important thing. Yeah. Well, let's see. Better make three files of this stuff we're saving for the government. Rubber in one, metal in another, and paper... Hey, look. What? Here's my old ukulele. Say, I never knew you had a ukulele. Oh, sure you did. <laughs> Remember before we were married how we used to sit in the swing out in our front lawn and I'd play the uke and sing to you? <laughs> Stuff like Red Wing and Pretty Baby and <laughs> There's Egypt in Your Dreamy Eyes. <laughs> What's the matter? What you looking at me like that for? McGee, give me that ukulele. Okay, here. But it needs to be tuned up before you can... Hey! Hey! What's the idea of busting it up, Molly? Haven't you got any sentiment? Not for this. Huh? The only swing on the front lawn in our neighborhood belonged to that red-headed Dixon girl down the street, and that wasn't Egypt in her dreamy eyes. That was mascara. <laughs> the hussy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh well, I, I never liked her very much anyway. Honest? Nah, her swing squeaked. <laughs> hey, here's your old portable sewing machine, Molly. That's good for 30 pounds of metal. Oh, and here's a pile of old magazines. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the police gazette. Oh, I'll take those, Molly. I, I was planning on joining the police force once. You I, don't say. Yeah. Well, hello there, folks. What goes on? Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hi, Harlow. We're cleaning out the hall closet. We're sorting out some things that the government can salvage. Want to pitch in and see what you can find, Mr. Wilcox? Yeah. we got everything here but the kitchen. McGee, there it is. What? The kitchen sink over in the corner there. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, darned if it ain't. Well, that's another 20 pounds of iron. Well, I'll just go away quietly and leave you two to your memories and old umbrellas. I wouldn't want to... Oh, look at this. What are you mooning over that for? It's just an old tin can. Yes, but an old tin can of what? What? Johnson's self-polishing glow coat. But it's empty. That's what I love about it. This empty can means that Molly has been spared hours and hours of housework. It means that her kitchen linoleum has been tenderly cared for. That its beauty and luster have been preserved. Yes, but that empty can must have been around for years and years. Swell. The longer you've been using it, the better I like it. It just goes to show that once our housewife has tried Johnson's glow coat, she keeps on. Because it's so easy to use, saves so much time and effort, conserves your energy and your property. Hand me my hat, Molly. Where are you going, dearie? No place. I just want to take it off to Mr. Wilcox. <laughs> There's a guy who can really dramatize a tin can. Break his commercial little heart over a pile of junk. <laughs> Boy, what a performance he could put on at the city dump. You think not? You think not? Meet me there tomorrow at 2.30. <laughs> I ever knew another man who was quite so sold on his job, McGee. Me either. Ever notice that little bare spot in the back of his head? Is he getting bald? No, his hair is just worn off there. He uses a can of glow coat for a pillow. <laughs> if 
Well, come on, let's get busy. We ain't made a dent in this stuff yet. Hey, where are you going, Ma? I'm going to put on an old house dress. This stuff is too dusty to handle. Oh. Now, you keep busy, dearie, and I'll be back in a minute. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Boy, what a family can accumulate in a few years. <laughs> What's this? What's this? Ashtray from the Sherman Hotel in Chicago. Hmm. So that's where I stayed during that Legion convention. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Hi, mister. Huh? Oh, hi, little girl. I'll come back later now. I'm busy. What you doing, huh? I'm cleaning out the closet, sis, and at the same time seeing what I can dig up that might be useful to Uncle Sam. Oh. Hey, is Uncle Sam really our uncle, mister? Is he? Sis? <laughs> he really is, sis. And nobody ever had a better uncle. Like most relatives, he annoys us now and then, and we squawk and complain, but don't mean anything. When we get in a jam, he's always in there to back us up, and when he gets in a mess, we... We rally around. He's the only rich uncle in the world that his whole family hopes he'll live forever. Now get out of the way, sis. I'm busy. I want to get back. Oh, oh, lucky, mister. Look what I found. Ice skate. Where? Oh, oh, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those used to be my ice skates, sis. Can I have them, mister? Who can I play yeah, for? Sis, you'd, you'd be welcome to them, except for three reasons. <laughs> they won't fit you, and they're so rusty they ain't good for skating anymore. And in the third place... Uncle Sam needs them more than you do. I'm sorry. Okay, mister. There's another reason, too. What's that? Hmm? I says, what's that? What's what? What's the fourth reason you don't want these skates? That's it. I don't want them. (laughs) And why did you ask for them? Just to see if you'd give them to me. Hmm. I'd rather wait and have a good pair anyway. What do you mean, a good pair? These were the most expensive skates I ever won selling Larkin products door to door. Well, I bet you they can't be much good, I bet you. My daddy said so. Your daddy didn't even know I ever had a pair of skates. Well, he must have. He said they were no good. I don't... Now, let's get this straight, sis. What was your immediate paternal forebear dumb's comment regarding these mill pond moccasins? Say that again? <laughs> I says, what did your old man say? He said McGee's were the cheapest skates he ever saw. <laughs> the King's Man and the Village Blacksmith. The Village Smith, he stands by the tree. The Smith, the mighty man, now is he. Rubber went on priority. He's bigger than 
farts, such farts, such farts, such flap. He goes to shows. He's the life of every party. In the high silk hat, that money in his pants. Hey, hey. more stuff we got. Well, not much. Just the old dress form and your old golf clubs and the magazine and some little stuff. Say, I wonder if I can't still use those golf clubs. What was your score the last time you played? No, I guess I don't need them anymore. (laughs) Here's your dress form, Molly. Thank you, dearie. Boy, what a load of junk. Well, the truck is way down on its springs now. Hey, where'd that driver go? He's out in the garage talking to Lillian. (laughs) Wonder he wouldn't stick around and lend a hand. Oh, here's the magazines. Say, what's this thing, McGee? Oh, that's my old steel helmet from the last war. <laughs> I bet the governor government will be glad to. I bet the government will be glad to get that. <laughs> I made it. Well, I don't know, McGee. This helmet's got an awful dent in the top of it. <laughs> I'll say it has. That helmet saved my life in the last war. Oh, get hit by a bullet? No, bumped into a stump. <laughs> I was crawling out of a... Oh, look who's coming. The trivia. Oh, well, let's not get into one of those silly arguments with him, will you? Oh, come on. Let's do Do him good. Hi, the trivia. Hello, McGee. Good day, Mrs. McGee. What are you doing up in that truck? Oh, just loading some junk into it, Mr. Mayor. We just cleaned out the closet. Well, why doesn't McGee get up in the truck and let you hand him the thing? Now, you mind your own business, Latrivia. Molly's the kind of woman I always like to look up to. <laughs> Here, Molly. Catch. Uh, can I help? No, thank you, Mr. Mayor. We're nearly through now. Oh, very well. I just came by to ask if you subscribe to Liberty Magazine. Oh, yes, we do, Mr. Mayor. But if you're working your way through college, we'll be glad to see you. Uh, I'm not working my way through college, Mr. McGee. I merely wish to tell you that in tomorrow's issue of Liberty, there will be a four-page article about you and Mr. McGee. Honest, Latrivia? As honest as it could be, I suppose, considering it's a family magazine. Well, thank you, Mr. Mayor. We'll be looking for it. And I might have known you weren't working your way through college. (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, Mrs. McGee, I did work my way through college. Interfere with your college work any, Latrivia? No, no, not a bit. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was particularly active in the Glee Club. Oh, well, here we go again. Uh, uh, So you belong to a Glee Club, did you, Mr. Mayor? That must have been fun. It was, it was. We had some splendid singers. I suppose they sang on account of being so gleeful. No. 
<laughs> no, because they belong to the Glee Club. A Glee Club is formed for the purpose of group singing. Oh, I always sing when I'm happy to, but I don't have to belong to a club to do it, Mr. McGee. <laughs> I didn't either, Mrs. McGee. I joined the Glee Club because I like to sing. Uh -huh. But a Glee Club is not necessarily gleeful. You mean they were unhappy? Why? Why should they be unhappy? Why shouldn't they be? Well, they should be. I mean, no. No, they shouldn't be. What has their happiness got to do with it? Now, that's a fine attitude, Latrivia. Not to care whether your own club is happy or not. Why, when I went to high school... I am merely trying to explain that the term glee club has nothing to do with glee. Is that clear? Oh, I see what you mean. Like if you belong to the Elks, you don't necessarily have to give all your friends one of your front teeth. <laughs> that's exactly what I... Uh, no, no. What I'm trying to say is that a college glee club is formed of people who like to sing. Oh, mm. Certainly. <laughs> you see, Molly, if you ain't full of glee, they won't take you in because... Whether or not you're full of glee doesn't matter. All that matters is whether or not you can sing. Well, it's the same thing. You can't sing unless you're gleeful. Well, how about Lawrence Tippett, Molly? He has to sing at concerts whether he's gleeful or not. Yeah, but how much does he get? Oh, up in the thousands, I guess. And he's unhappy about that? I didn't say he was unhappy. But you said distinctly that... Mr. Tibbet wasn't happy when he sang, and I only But you said, said he had to be No, gleeful. McGee, I merely said, said that well, I... Well, I'll just leave you two good people to argue it out by yourself. <laughs> and don't forget the Liberty article. A good day. So long, the trivia. Goodbye, Mr. Mayor. Unhappy at receiving thousands of dollars of performance. I, I never said, said no such a thing. You did too. You did. No, I says that. The... Yeah, you. Hey, what are we arguing about? La Trivia's gone. What? Oh, heavenly days! <laughs> Caught on our own hook. <laughs> well, let's get the rest of this stuff loaded, McGee. Okay. There. Is this all the stuff, Molly? Any more in the closet? No, it's all out here, McGee. Fine. That closet was as empty as the threat to Joe Lewis's title. Okay. <laughs> but Uncle Dennis... Oh, Uncle Dennis, Uncle Dennis, Uncle Dennis. I get tired of hearing about that guy. When's he going to move out? Now, listen, don't you talk like that about well... Uncle Dennis. He's never done anything to you. No, except he eats more than Lillian and sleeps more than Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> He's a regular parachute. <laughs> no, you mean... You mean parasite, theory. A parachute is a big thing that gets full of air and lets you down easy. That's what I say. Uncle Dennis is a regular parachute. Oh, hi, Wimple. Oh, hello, Mr. McGee. Hello, Mr. McGee. Hello, Mr. Wimple. We'll be through here in just a minute. Hand me that last little pile of things, McGee. Here you are. There, now that's all. Help me down, baby. Okay. Grab my hand. That's it. My goodness. What on earth are you folks doing? Uh, we just cleaned out our hall closet, Mr. Wimple. We're sending a lot of old metal and rubber and paper to the government. Oh, that's splendid, Mrs. McGee. I went down this morning and tried to join the Marines. Oh. Sweetie Face went with me to give her consent. Oh. Did they take you, Wimp? No. <laughs> they said my eyes were too weak and I was anemic and underweight and overage and I wasn't tall enough. Well, that's too bad, Mr. Wimple. No. It came out all right. Oh. They accepted sweetie face. 
mean Sweetie Face is in the Marines now, Wimp? Uh, just uh, as an instructor, Mr. McGee. Oh. She's going to teach them how to box and wrestle and do jiu-jitsu. <laughs> she demonstrated to them how to disarm an opponent, stun him with a blow on the neck, and knock all his teeth out. <laughs> Heavenly days, that must have been impressive. Oh, indeed it was. <laughs> By the way, can you recommend a good dentist? <laughs> Go see Doc Cotton, Wimp. Tell him I sent you. So Sweetie Face used you as an example of how to treat an enemy, eh? Oh, she certainly did, Mr. McGee. And then the recruiting officer asked Sweetie Face if she knew anything about bayonet fighting. <laughs> and what did she say? I don't know, Mrs. McGee. I jumped out the window. <laughs> But look at me, standing here gossiping when you're so busy. Now we're all finished, Wimp. Come on in and take a look at the closet now. It's a site for sore housekeepers. <laughs> we'll show you the closet, and then maybe Molly will make us a cup of coffee. Certainly, boys. But, McGee, I was telling you that Uncle Dennis... Oh, skip Uncle Dennis. Come on in, Wimp. Yeah. My, this is such a peaceful house. I wish I lived here. Or someplace. Oh. Well, now, listen, any time you want to come for a couple of weeks to heal up, Mr. Wimple, we'll be glad to have you. Sure we will. Here, take a look at this closet, Wimp. I'm proud of this. But, McGee, I told you... No, I, I want Wimple to see the closet. Now, look, Wimp. Well, what in the... I've been Ooh. trying to tell you, McGee. Huh? I've been trying to tell you all the time. When Uncle Dennis saw that bear closet, he moved all his stuff in there. <laughs> well, we haven't all got hall closets like the McGee's. But if you're looking for ways in which you can do something right now that will help your country, listen carefully. You can turn this spring house cleaning into direct aid for all-out production by very carefully salvaging from your attic and basement all discarded articles made with rubber or metal, as well as old rags and scrap paper. Rubber and scrap metal are most important. Twenty-nine pounds of old rubber will make a life raft for a Navy plane. Twelve pounds of scrap metal is half the steel needed for a small machine gun. That's important, isn't it? Sort out all discarded tools, old tire chains, batteries, pieces of pipe, anything made of metal that you can't use. Sort out old rubber tires, torn boots or overshoes, hot water bottles, bath mats. Sort out old clothing, rags of all kinds, waste paper and cartons. Send them to your local junk collector or give them to a charitable organization that's collecting such material. Remember, rubber and scrap metal are most important right now. Your government is asking your help. Make this spring house cleaning your special contribution to victory. job is done, and you certainly have worked hard, McGee. 
I'll say that for you. <laughs> I'll say that for me, too. You look tired, dearie. Yeah. Say, why don't you go down to the Elks Gymnasium and get yourself a massage? Oh, I can't, Molly. The masseur joined the army. He did? <laughs> I thought he was way over age. Well, he is, but I guess the government wants any old rubber it can get. Oh. <laughs> huh? I said, oh. Oh. Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program has come to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Jaws Professional, Bill Brown Tab, Skype Trade Tab, Online Tab, Walden Tab, Search Ed, Act, Favorite, Martin, Ed Clue, Patricia from F Applications, Con, Send, Invite to Enter, Leaving Menus, Contact, Unloading, Jacans, OK, Enter, Patricia from F. And we'll see if she picks it up. No. Hello. Here's How her are sh- we? Well, fine. Here's your song. I hope you did. Oh, Patricia, my darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia You could make all my dreaming come true My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling I'm falling in love with you. Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue sky. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling, I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. 
My heart is just droolin', Patricia, no foolin'. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love with you. I think that's appropriate. I mean, a waltz. You know, Patricia and a waltz seem to go together hand in hand. Don't think. Are you there? I'm here. You're making me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I am not Princess Grace. Do not ever ask me for a dance. <laughs> well, I follow well. I just don't dance well by myself. So you have to be a good dancer. You and I, you and I will have a good time because me trying to lead and you trying to follow will be an interesting sight. Wouldn't that be a hoot? <laughs> We could bring the house down. We could. Our walks would be yes, just fine. Yes, yes. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday, adorable. Oh, thank you, lovable. Oh. Did you have a good week? Hi, everybody. Hi, oh, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm having this conversation with myself over here. Hey, it's been busy. I am working on five different old-time radio events around the country all at once. And and uh, so I was working on the Las Vegas one here with a with a with a scriptwriter a, a few minutes ago. After I took a nap, after I'm transferring the tapes, after uh, after our Paul Harvey special last night. And how did that go? Forgive me, I I wasn't able to listen to it. How did it go? Oh, it went fine. I think um, we have had the two books out. Mm-hmm. We had one of the authors on last night, whose name is David Holland. It's called Paul Harvey America. And then on Thursday, Larry and I pre-recorded uh, "Good Day" from uh, the author is the vice president of Focus on the Family, and so he was our get, and he really had a good time. We're going to probably run that on the twelfth, so we're going to have two nights. Devoted to Paul Harvey. Here's an here's a fact, Patricia, that I didn't know. Couple of things. You know okay. who who you know who was responsible for getting Paul Harvey heard nationally. No. Nick Yellman was a fan. He listened to him on local radio in Chicago in the late forties mm-hmm. and said, "I think he's good enough to go national." So he pulled strings. It was Joe Kennedy. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Oh my goodness! In between his ex- activities. <laughs> oh, so, forgive me. So it was Joe, it was Joe Kennedy. You no, know, it's a political year. Everybody has to jump in and do its thing. <laughs> wow. So it was Joe Kennedy that was responsible for making Paul Harvey, Paul Harvey national. Isn't that a hoot? Yes. The other thing is, there was a bidding war for Paul Harvey's broadcast rights in his eighties. And a bidding war, a bidding war. and <laughs> so he signed. When I grow up, I want somebody to bid a war around <laughs> He signed a ten-year deal in his eighty for a hundred million dollars, and he almost finished. The, he almost finished the deal, and the, the losing network said, "Once the contract runs out, we're going to outbid and get you for the next in his 90s. You know, but he didn't quite make that. So 
it was fun. Uh, what we oh, then we have missed our call. <laughs> Come up with some really good shtick. We do, we Maybe do. Somebody g- nationally will be listening to us and say, "I think oh, so." I know where those people belong. I have plans for us. We're going. We're going. <laughs> you know, radio. Hurry up! The bills are coming. In. <laughs> <laughs> radio is our thing, everybody. You know, if you love adorable, uh, yeah. I will accept a ten million dollar contract a year for her for the next twenty years. You know, I'll, I'll I will make sure she signs it. You know, she'll she'll be happy. Just I, I think I think we better do it for a little less than twenty years. <laughs> I have to be able to fulfill the contract, right? No, no. I, oh, really? No. No. Well, it's. Do you know? And <laughs> this is the stupidest thing I ever saw. Yeah. It it has to be the the lease forms that they use in my community are probably the standard cookie cutter dealies yep. that you just make little adjustments in. One of the provisions is, no matter what happens, I'm paraphrasing now, no matter what happens, you're still responsible for paying for your apartment mm-hmm. until the end of your lease, unless you find someone to sublease it. Right. And the list of reasons they have, do not. it doesn't make any difference if you have a medical problem. It doesn't make any difference if you're moving. It doesn't make any difference for school. The only exception that they make is for the military. And I'm very grateful that they do that. Yeah. But one of the things that they don't take into account and you're still responsible for your rent is if you die. <laughs> now, isn't that... I mean, you just have to read these forms for your daily entertainment. Yes. Yes. No, no, I mean, you know, Paul didn't make it to in a, in a contract, but they gave him the money anyway. Well, of course not. You know, so... A hundred million dollars. For ten years. So that's ten million dollars for a year. year. Yeah, he. Can I sign an annual contract? Well, you know, similar. Hmm? Yeah. What, what what kind of provision? Like work six months and take six months off, and we'll we can do that every year for a while. Oh, you can be my manager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, another thing I learned. We'll open the phone lines, family. But Patricia and I haven't caught up. She had stuff this week, and I had stuff this yeah, week. We haven't. Haven't had a conversation for a week and a half. I know. Please, I know. Please. I know. I know. Yeah. I missed that. Uh, uh, I do. You know where I am. I you know. Have my number. I know. I know. I don't call guys. I wait for them to call. <laughs> <laughs> you call me once in a while. I am so sorry. We're going to have a good time. Tonight. <laughs> You okay, you've called me once in a while when I know to. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I no. do. I say, well, then the station is <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, another thing I did not realize until we got a little more in the involved the research. He was he was speaking around the country four nights a week while he was doing his radio show at four in the morning. Oh, Harvey. Yes. Do I have to do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I better read the contract. No, no, that that was separate. That was person. That was a personal side deal. Okay. You know. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll calm down. Okay. <laughs> so he had his own airplane and would fly to around the country, and then fly home, sleep for a couple of hours, get up at four in the morning, do his stuff. I think I need to read this contract very carefully. The, the, the interesting thing is, 
That's incredible. His stringers knew what time to get him because he was always in the office at 4 in the morning. So he was always the one answering the phone between 6 and 6.30 before his secretary got in. Uh-huh. And so he was the one that got all those scoops, you know, last-minute scoop to stick into his column, into his articles. Mm-hmm. And his wife was a, a night person, so she took care of the night stuff. So they would meet halfway during the day, and then, you know. <laughs> they had brunch. <laughs> And that was it. Yeah, but she she was the brain, she was the manager and the brain and the business person. Mm -hmm. And they met each other at a radio station in St. Louis. Really? What was she doing? Don't know. I haven't. John Roy's been reading the book. I haven't. I haven't had time to read the book. But I'm asking her. Her dad. Her dad was a judge. Her dad was a famous judge in St. Louis, so she came from that kind of background. Walden. Yes, my dear. If he was famous, how come we don't know who he was? That's true. In the St. Louis area. Okay. Okay. I've okay. never I've never been to St. Louis. Neither of them. Well, you know I've never been anywhere. <laughs> that's true. That, that's yeah. really true. I, I could count on one hand the places I have been in Florida and New York or two of them. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, my goodness. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm. I got the sillies tonight. That's okay. So those are some of the stuff we learned last night. We we played the earliest Paul Harvey recording that we had from 47 to 59 uh, into 63, 64. It's interesting how meek and mild he became in the 70s, 80s, and 90s compared to what he what he was like in the 50s. Hmm. I know his format changed. Mm-hmm. He, he was kind of tough and did you know this and by the way here is some really snappy information in the beginning and he was he paid attention to memorializing people mm-hmm. in the latter part of his career that's the best I can put it he would find someone to say some really surprising and interesting things and then say it was Mickey Mouse you know at the, at the <laughs> yep. end yep so. yep he was an interesting person. His uh, rest of the stories uh, uh-huh. that his son wrote, it was va- it was, it was, the value was $40 million just for that piece of property alone. What? Yep. Walden, hang up and start writing. <laughs> I'll, I'll be here. I can't take calls, but I can talk a lot. Now you, you just go along and start writing up proposals, and, oh, I can help with, I, I write, I, I'm really good on proposals. I know, you know, so but you I, see, I can help with she, you know, you have to write the three-minute little history vignette, you know. Oh, I can, I can do that on a snap. I know you can. <laughs> 40 million bucks a year, that wouldn't be bad. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my little heart. <laughs> Please, it's very fragile. <laughs> You're making my little heart go to tea. Anyway, the reason why... You know, once Paul passed away, that 15-minute uh, cast and the morning cast and the rest of the story all disappeared. Originally, the, the idea was that son, his son was going to take over. Mm-hmm. But, but there were two factors. Hey, he didn't like get up early in the morning. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and B, when he... And I'm off the boards here, aren't I? <laughs> and then B was... Okay. I just don't have to go to bed. What? <laughs> and then B, and then, uh, then B uh, ABC and um, 
and him had a disagreement on the value of the properties. Uh, they weren't gonna, you know, once Paul Harvey was gone, they they didn't they w- didn't want to spend as much money on it as they had, and so mm-hmm. because he, you know, because his family the family company made a few dollars over the years, he figured that that, that was it. Whoa. Yeah. Now, see, we 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 can be, um, we can step a lot more softly than that. Yes. I'll settle for a million. I don't need ten million. Uh, I think I'd be. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. We could we could uh, we could work. Hurry up, Walden. <laughs> <laughs> you you have to go faster than this. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Oh, my God. Anyway, so a lot of things that we learned about Paul Harvey the last several days, which I have. John and Laura has been reading the books, and we've had two different authors on. So we run one of them last night, and the next one's next Friday. And it'll all be heard, be heard during the day on the blue. Good yeah. deal. Good deal. Okay. Do we need to talk to people? It's up to you. You're running the show. How could that be? You've got all the buttons. I know, I know. But ladies first in my life, you know, they they can always uh, they can always sweet talk me. I really like this idea about being on the dance floor <laughs> together. I I can't dance. <laughs> We're just gonna knock their socks oh, off. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm going to think about that for a week. Well, to bring a smile to your face, that's what's all count. That's, that's better than a smile. Yeah. But that's going to be a chuckle. Uh, we're, we're going to find out from our family how much of a chuckle that's worth. That I think true. it's great. <laughs> I really like the image of this. 714 <laughs> okay. You like to give Patricia a call? She'll be here for a little while. We have a really special thing. Because we're on the anniversary end of World War II in August of 45. That's, oh, that's right. We have some new recordings to play. And the one I'm playing to play tonight mm-hmm. is the day that they surrendered on August the 14th. Mutual, we have the mutual coverage during the day. And so you get to hear what mutual sounded like. They had a music show. They had a quiz show. They had John J. Anthony on. Get a different, you know, get a feel for a couple hours what they were going through. You know, a typical broadcast day. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and that we just recently came across that. So that's what we're going to feature. Hello, you, you have are. To tell me which, I'm sorry, quiz show. You have to tell me which quiz show. I love quiz shows. Yeah, quiz it's there. a show I never heard of before. Hello there, you're on the air. Call? Hopefully, let's, let's make sure when, that when there is, a, when when you call, and the phone picks up and we're still talking, hang on because we'll be right there. Yep, call again, okay. call. You didn't, they they didn't stay there, so hopefully didn't stay there, didn't stay there. So well, <laughs> can I tell people? Yes, I can tell people. Yeah, I collected a couple of pieces of information for to try to stump Walden, and one of them was a nifty colonial piece of information about Alexander Hamilton. And, <clears throat> excuse me,
excuse me, I've been working on the laptop, and when we do the show, I've got my big computer in front of me. So in order to make sure that I don't lose track of these goodies, I email them to myself. So when I get to the big computer, I just open the email, and I've got all these little goodies, <laughs> except I mailed one to Walden. So I gave him not only the question, I gave him the answer. So we have to cross Alexander Hamilton off your list. Well, I think we need to give that to the family. That's a great piece of things I learned. Hello there, Carl. You're on air. Hey, this is the St. Louis Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> Bob. I, I just thought I'd welcome you guys. Well, thank you, oh, Bob. Bob, our gunsmoke guy. How are you? Good, good. Haven't talked to you in a while. That's I true. know. How is it living in an apartment complex now? After was it been a year? How long do you? It has been a year. Yeah, we we love it. We love it, you know. I can't. Are you serious? It's been a whole year. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, we oh a second second lease. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I can't believe how fast time goes. All of a sudden, summer's over, and the new school year belong or starts here in a week. So all of a sudden, it's back to and work. You don't have you know? to shovel snow. Yeah, yeah, but he—he got to get up. He has to get up at four in the morning to drive all those little kids to school, though. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah I enjoy. He was going it. to have to do that. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy that. How you guys been? Everything good? I was listening to a little bit of your Paul Harvey thing, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Are you saying that his forty million dollars was his income? Just on the rest of the story. So he had, how many stations was that on? Uh, on the highest, ABC was on nine, 900 stations. And then <laughs> what he would do is he would sell advertising on that himself. Right? No, well, this is the way it worked. Uh, ABC had no control. The, the Harvey family owned outright the rest of the story and his newscast. They were, so he got $10 million a year. For the news, the rest of the story really? was a, the rest of the story was forty million dollars property. His son wrote the script, talking to one of the authors of the books. He's, he had a staff of researchers, and so his son was a concert pianist, and his mom, uh, Angel, was the heavy promoter for Paul's newscast. He 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 booked them. Four speaking engagements a week around the country. Yeah. So he had his oh, he own. used to love that. He used to say, and on the roving microphone this week, Angel and I are going to be in. Yep. You know. Yep. And so he. On Arizona. Yeah. He would get up at four. In, he would be in the office four in the morning writing a script for the morning show, the noon. And then he would fly his own plane to whatever speaking engagement around the country, speak, fly home that night, sleep for a couple hours, and get up in the morning. So she would, oh. she would book his speaking engagement, and also she would respond booking her son's concert piano career. And, but one that wasn't quite going to what they would hope, uh, the son bought the home next door. And, <laughs> and so he wound up being the chief writer for the rest of the story. And that was, yeah, that, I knew that. That was, worth, uh, that was a value of 40 million bucks a year. Well, you know what drives me crazy about that is I would have done it for half that. <laughs> well, and I imagine we're talking about. See, I imagine, yeah. I imagine, you know, they had. Remember, there used to be books came out. The truth, you know, I remember True Value used to have 
the Paul, they were the sponsor of that series for a while, and, yeah. they, and they would have books. So I imagine all that derivative income probably made that property worth $40 million alone, just because the books and everything they sold. And then, of course, Paul would have revenue from all those personal endorsements for every time yeah. he did a sponsor. So I, I know that I, over the years, I, when we were in, uh, well, here in St. Louis, and I also know there was a fellow in Arkansas in Little Rock for years that did this, people that get really popular mm-hmm. and, and become, well, there was a guy in, in St. Louis for years called Jack Carney, and he had a program, and if I understand it right, and there's a guy here now, he calls himself Frank Opinion. And he has an afternoon drive time show, and he's been on for 20 years, AM station. But what he does and what Carney used to do in this guy in Arkansas, and they were all millionaires, is mm-hmm. they would literally buy the time from the station. And then they would go out and sell their own advertising. And the station, in turn, also, I think, got two or three ads an hour or, or something, too. But he and and all of the the products that they sold were like Paul Harvey, mm-hmm. their per, personal endorsements, you know. And right. and these people have such a rapport with their audience; they're so good at it. Right. That if they endorse a product, like I remember, there was one restaurant that opened here. At Frank Opinion started advertising for them. Before you know it, they had a chain of like fourteen restaurants, <laughs> and they were just, you know. And I know the advertising was expensive. There's no question about it, but. You know, they, he would always say, man, I was over in this restaurant the other day, and this happened, and that happened, mm-hmm. and I saw the owner. And, or I went over to this guy's car lot and bought a car. He, he had me test drive a car this week. And, you know, or he'd get him on the phone and talk to You know, it just, it's just the way of marketing that is very, very intelligent. Like yeah. You've got you've to be popular first. Well, Ray Bream, who was a legendary talk show host and people I've heard him play, uh, he went and negotiated a deal with KBC. KBC, everybody with the ABC affiliate. They did not have an overnight disc jockey format or talk show host. This was early in the 60s, you know, when... Right, yeah. He worked it out um, that the manager said, you know, there's no money in overnight radio. And Ray says, you pay me $1 above scale and let me keep a piece of the action... Of every advertiser that I read the script, uh, will go with that route. And so the owner, the manager, said he was getting a deal because you know normally LA hosts get big, big bucks. So he he sure, agreed. Yeah. He agreed the deal, and Ray Bream made a killing. That was the uh, it, see, he, uh, yeah. I used to listen to him all the time when yep. I was still in LA, yep. and he did exactly that same kind of thing. He would personally endorse products. That's right. You know. So-and-so, oh, I had so-and-so come over and put a new roof uh-huh. in my house. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. But it's just, it's, it's amazing how the radio business is. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, for example, m- most people may or may not know, your national syndicated shows are given to the local station for free. Right. And what what they do for every hour... The national they keep at least one ad for themselves, so that's where they make the money, and the local station get four or five spots and they sell that themselves. 
and that's how they make their money. And yeah, generally, I think they get more than one spot an hour. It, it, yeah, it yeah. just depends how they work the structure yeah, right. that works out. Negotiated. Yep. But generally, that's how radio's done today. There used to be syndicators used to sell their stuff directly to the stations, and they would pay for it per content, but that model pretty much is out the door now. Now, in in the days of uh, of our old-time radio era, mm-hmm. when the sponsors owned the shows, right. um, they had an awful lot to say about the creative content, right? Right. I mean, that I guess that would have driven you crazy if you were, you know... George Burns or Jack Benny or something to have the, well, you know, the it, it people. Def- to- well, then, am I am I correct in remembering that Myers Cynthia Myers yeah. said that the advertising agencies bought the time and owned the time and then sold it to advertisers, but the agencies bought the time first. Mm-hmm. Do I remember that correctly? Correct. That's why in the mouth. Yes. That's the, that's the normal, traditional model during the old-time radio. You're right, Patricia. And that was the old, old-time stuff. Yes. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Like Maxwell House would buy a half an hour on CBS and put the George and Gracie show on. Well, actually, it would be the advertising agency who handled the Maxwell House company okay. account. Okay, yeah. As Patricia was pointing out. So what they did, the next thing, care, they sold 52 weeks out of the year to, to the advertising agency. And then it was up to them. They bought their client. So they said, okay, we can guarantee you NBC 8 o'clock every Monday night. And I said, fine, we're in. So it was up to the advertising agency to create the show. Now, some shows, they own outright. Others, they went to Jack Benny, who owned his own show. And they would make a deal with Jack. They would pay Jack so much a week, and then Jack would be responsible. Uh... That's the reason why he lost Jello as a sponsor. Jello Food owned Jello and Great Nuts. And during the war, you remember, Jack ratings fell down to fifth or sixth. And they were going to renew his contract to the following year. And they told Jack, watch it. And once the meeting was done, Jack told his manager, we'll not sign the contract. You go find somebody else. I'm not. Anybody tells me to watch it, even though we're fifth or sixth uh, in the country, yeah. uh, we're going somewhere. And that's when Lucky Strike came into the deal. Ah. Uh, and Lucky Strike was uh, a good. Th- I mean, I, I, I never would endorse a tobacco company. Mm hmm. But they were a good fit in that their, their commercials, they integrated into the show and, you know. Well, there was a and pro- they had the, 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 you know, the quartet sing their yeah, there commercials. Pro- there was a problem with American Tobacco. Uh, George Washington Hill was a hand-on person, and he was shoved down in the 30s up till he died in 46. He was shoved down that hard-sell commercial, and radio shows hated that, especially if Patricia read the book on information, please. Dan Goldenpaul, the producer, fired Lucky Strike on the air. Really? Yes. He, he, he had... He would fire his own mother. Yeah. He, he had, just before the broadcast, he had legal papers... Who, who did this? Dan Goldenpaul, the producer and owner of Information Please, had, okay. had legal papers served on his announcers. Because he got tired of them 
with the hard sell and interrupting the show, saying Lucky Strike goes to goes to war. Oh, that's right. They had that new promotional. Yep. And Lucky Strike goes to Carnegie Hall. Yep. And L- they Luck- they were just dropping in in the middle of the show. Lucky Strike Green goes to war, and he got so tired of that, he fired him. Well, when Philip Morris took over on. Uh on Gunsmoke, yeah, or uh, not Philip Morris, uh, Ligon and Myers, right? Um, they did the same thing. All of a sudden, there was two commercials during the show. You know, the content of the show dropped from about twenty-seven minutes to twenty-two, mm-hmm. and then they added a commercial at the end and a, a jingle. And, and yeah, I mean, it just really that would be very frustrating. It was, yeah, it was, and so it depends. On the structure, some of the talent owned their own shows outright, like Jack Benny would have owned it. Some of the advertising created their own content. And in the late 40s, that's when the networks realized they wanted more control, so they tried to create their own shows. And But when Patricia and I have had Cynthia Myers, the professor who's written a book on radio advertising, she really knows her stuff. Um, what, what we, we need uh, to have her back. Yes, I'm trying to remember. We, we only covered a fraction of what she covered in her studies and her book. And, my gosh, I mean, that's where Frank and Ann Hummert came from. For example. Hummert was, was part owner of an advertising agency, and they started writing the programs to fill the space that they had bought so they could sell it to advertisers. I, I, she was the one. Mr. Keen. And what else did we get? Oh, 130 shows, Mr. Chameleon. It was just, yeah. Um, but she explained to us last year, and I think Patricia read this in the book, that it was actually the networks that went to Congress to lobby to get the, to, the cigarette companies off the air. Mm. Uh, Say that again. Yes. It was actually the, the, it was the broadcasting industry, then the radio networks themselves, TV networks, went and lobby Congress to get the, the tobacco companies off the air. Why? Why? I'm trying to remember the story that she, in her research, we'll have to pull the book out, but maybe maybe they, I think the part of the problem was Congress had this rule that if you're going to have cigarette commercials, you have to have uh, PSA, non-smoking. Oh, and so the, oh. and, 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 and so the radio stations weren't making any money on their PSAs. The TV, yeah. so they decided to dump the whole tobacco industry to to sell that to be able to sell that time spot. You know that that doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense either. No. Did the did the tobacco companies bristle at having? You know, they've got their advertising. We've got the best cigarette in the world, right? And it's going to treat your throat very kindly. And nine doctors out of ten say right. camels are okay, right? And then said, and then we automatically switch over to smoking is terrible for your health, right? <laughs> You should oh, take I'm care of yourself I mean, better I than that. If I they were was, paying the kind of advertising rates that the cigarette companies were paying. Well, that they did fight it, and they used to come out with editorials, and it wasn't until that whistleblower case, you know, that they made the movie out of with um, with Russell Crowe, what was the name of The Insider, I think it was. That That whole case kind of blew it wide open, and when they actually could produce documents that showed that the tobacco companies knew that nicotine was not only harmful but addictive and they were adding it, you know, uh, then all of mm-hmm. a sudden they just got red-faced and, yeah. and they shut up. 
but what's so sad about it is we had a, a friend who was a medical doctor in China, and uh, he came to the United States. We met him here. We didn't. I've never been to China, but he was telling us at the time that in China it was always considered inappropriate for women to smoke. It was a masculine thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, he said, uh, in the 60s, in the early 70s, when all of this blew up, all of a sudden there was billboards of China, uh, young, pretty attractive Chinese women smoking. And mm-hmm. so they got the, all the women in China hooked on cigarettes. So, I mean, this, these companies have no conscience. No conscience. You know, I, I just refuse to play tobacco commercials uh even even if they're you know people say well yeah but it's nostalgic well you know some of the jingles and things maybe but you know like you said patricia some of those ads were so and they were lying to their teeth you know uh, oh you know smoking is mild it's healthy mm-hmm. you know yes. just to feel and, you and instead it's of healthy. saying not as bad for you they would say better for you but the, yeah. the terminology was so finely tweaked on these things that they it was like they were selling fresh vegetables but wouldn't you think if you got caught at something like that you'd say my gosh i really i do have blood on my hands i've got to stop this but instead no okay well we can't do it in the united states anymore gosh here's a country of 800 million people or a billion people or whatever it is let's go over there and get them smoking and you know doing it. with their signs it the the um, Far East, sure, but they're all over the world. We don't have yeah. a drop compared to what they've got on the roadsides in other countries. Yeah, yeah, it's really I have, sad. I have a question about advertising. Uh huh. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm changing the subject. That's okay. But if it's it's in my head, it's your it's your show. It's your show. Go go right ahead. No, it isn't. <laughs> you were talking about Jack Benny before. Mm-hmm. It was not the Jack Benny show. It maybe it was. Maybe it was. During the war, Jello was still advertising mm-hmm. and the spokespeople it might have been Don Wilson for Jack Benny. You can probably tell me which show this was on. They would they would promote Jello. Right. And say it's not on your grocer's shelf right now, but after the war when sugar is no longer right. rationed. And they were actually selling a product that didn't exist. Uh, and I thought that was absolute genius, the way they, yeah. they promoted it. Yep. And it's a market. It, well, think about it. Uh, General Motors, they had, every week, had the General Motors Symphony during the war. Mm-hmm. Even though they were not selling any cars or anything, they would still no. be General Motors. Or, or if you go to the Radio Hall of Fame, the... Uh, Radio manufacturer. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, so oh, we'll okay. show you. And yep. and we'll have the radio for you after the war. After yeah. the war. Mm-hmm. They were I know Anheuser-Busch tried to keep their name alive during Prohibition. And, you know, they, they did a lot of things and they sold at different products, but they just kept, you know, a lot of companies just folded, but they just said, no, you know, it's going to come back and, and uh, then, of course, when Prohibition ended, they sent a case of beer to, to the president, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, very clever. I mean, they, they, they are geniuses at marketing, just well, absolute genius. had it anyway. <laughs> look, look, how, look how cavalcade of America. 
Yeah, look how Cavalcade of America restructured DuPont's image for, for America. Oh, my gosh, yes. Boy, were they getting hammered. Right. During World War One. Uh, you know, they were, they were being... Oh, they, they were producing gases, yeah. Yeah, and they would be doing all the weapons of war, and it, it had all that bad press. Mm -hmm. So, by the 30s, they wanted to do something with... They wanted to do something with America. So that's when they came up with the idea of Cavalcade of America. Cavalcade of America. living chemistry with yep. that there slogan. Uh-huh. And so that, that sort of repaired DuPont image nationwide, even though those ratings were maybe not never in the top ten. They didn't care. I mean, it was a way. And you, you know, notice they, is what? They, had a, they made a different footprint, and that's all they needed. Correct. And so when you do those shows, a lot of times it's not necessarily showing the sponsor, I mean, products. They're sort of mm -hmm. talking about the industry. It's sort of like the theater. They're uh, selling an image. Mm -hmm. So like um, another example, the theater guild. They had Joyce Hick almost five, like five minutes during intermission talking about U.S. Steel and how the, how they have the relationship with the employee and they're, you know, making the product for America. It was basically an uh, info commercial for five minutes. You have to talk about how they look after their employees and, and things. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, the railroad hour, the railroad hour on Monday night, that, you know, how many people go, and buy the, go down and buy a train off the caboose? I mean, it was an image for the railroad industry to, to have their image. So they sponsored that. A lot of times, if you look at the old books, CBS had Lux Radio Theater, which was the big gorilla on broadcasting. Mm -hmm. So NBC sold their time to, let's say, high-end shows to the Firestone, DuPont, uh, General Mills, the Bell Telephone Hour. So they did, never got the ratings, per se, but they were there for years upon years, and it was a branding of an image. Wow. Yeah. You know, that, uh, yeah, Lux was, um, ironically, I, I, I'm putting my website back together, mm. my, where I, you know, I have a compilation of all the shows I've done over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got it up and running now, but I, I'm I'm putting the shows on there now. I think I've only got five or six on there now, but I've got 25 or 26 set up and they're on there, but I need to put in comments and things. But ironically, I, it's kind of fun for me. All of a sudden I'm listening to shows I did seven years ago that I forgot about. And, and there was one, it was a Lux radio theater. And I was quoting you Walden about, uh, it was, um, in fact, Carol and I were listening to it in the car. Coming, we went to a picnic this afternoon. We were coming uh -huh. back. And it was um, Strangers on a Train with oh, yeah. Milan and uh, Frank. Thank you, Joyce. And you had mentioned to me, obviously, because I said it in the introductory comments, mm -hmm. and I, I don't remember it for the life of me, but that, that what I had was actually a tape of the rehearsal. Right. And you could tell because the announcer was not, uh, who was the producer that was in there after uh, DeMille? Uh, William Keeley. Yeah, Keeley. Yeah, yeah, he was. You know, it was. It was. They, he said, "This is William Keeley." Or they were mm -hmm. said his words, but it wasn't him. Yeah, but uh, I don't remember why they recorded the 
the uh, rehearsal. Well, you explained that too, but yeah, I remember. generally that way they could go and listen to it that right after the rehearsal that night to okay. see if there need to be any more changes. Lux, Lux with the show that have five days of rehearsals, and right. and so and so the actors loved it because their checks were over 130 bucks a week. Uh, because they paid full rate for all the rehearsal time, five days a week with the movie stars. And so by Sunday, they would record the rehearsal, and they would listen to, it, listen to the playback. And generally, William Key or Sessa B. DeMille would not be there for four or five days. They would be in there for the Monday afternoon dress rehearsal. But you know they were doing prep time before CB or William Key would show up on Monday afternoon. And, um, oh, now what was I going to ask? But Lux budget, for for example, everybody, was over 20000 a week. Um, and you're talking about the 1930s. Whatever, yeah. whatever, Patricia, maybe you can figure that out. I mean, that's what they paid. <laughs> Thank you, Walt. <laughs> that's that, that's, see, they, they generally paid the four stars of 5000 each. Yeah. And so they're... And that and Cecil B or William Keeley, I think it's C B his little he would get fifteen hundred bucks a week just to read those yeah. few lines. Yeah. Oh, Frank, now, how many the shows that are in circulation now are rehearsals? How many? Well not ha- I mean, is 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 it a majority? Is it uh We used to have more. We have a, probably of the rehearsal about fifty to sixty of the rehearsals. Okay. Um, we have a lot of times rehearsal plus the show, but in case we don't have the show itself, it's just the rehearsal. Um, for some reason, it really doesn't make much difference. Well, sometimes. Well, a good example would be um, if you ever heard Barnacle Bill from 1946. It's in March of 46. It was starring the uh, the Berry family. It was Wallace Berry. He, his brothers and his daughter was oh. on the show. Well, the oldest Barry, they did the rehearsal Sunday, and then one of the Barry brothers died that night. Oh, my. And so they had a complete different actor sit into them on Monday. So yeah. interesting to hear how it was done on the rehearsal that Sunday and then what they did the following day. But Yeah. Yeah. So they did have. See, now, to me, I, I, you know, I understand that there's two different types of old-time radio fans. To me, I, I listen to it for the entertainment. Uh huh. You know, I, I'm not as inter- I mean, I, I love the history and all that. Don't get me wrong, but I don't. You know, I'm not like a stickler on it. It's like if I was collecting Superman comic books, I wouldn't care if it was in mint condition. You know, I just, I just want to read the comic books. You know what well, I mean? well, that's why a lot of the diehard they buy too. One to put away and one to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I like them in good sound quality. I, mm. I don't like to listen to old scratchy mm. stuff. But, but I mean, I don't really care if it's a rehearsal or a whatever. No, I, no. I, I, I want to hear the story. That's a high priority. Absolutely. But if I, can, yeah. if I can get both, I'm okay with that. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to hear historical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you'll get somebody will send me an email and say, how dare you cut out uh, that L&M commercial because that wasn't, you know, that's not the way the original production, well, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear an L&M commercial, I want to hear Gunsmoke, <laughs> or, you know, I want to hear the Jack Benny show, sure. or, you know, whatever, I don't, I, 
So anyway, that's just the way I sure. am. Well, listen, kids, I know you got all kinds of people waiting to talk to you. Well, thank you, I Bob. Don't, no. don't wait another I year. I am so happy that you called in. Don't wait another year. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, right. I've, I've, talked, I've talked to you within a year. I know I have. But anyway. At least once. That's right. Yeah. Okay, you guys. Okay, Bob. We'll talk to you soon. good to talk to you. Good night, Bob. Good night. And that's Bob Blow, everybody, who has gun smoke on Monday and a, and his normal Boomer Boulevard during the weekdays. Boomer Boulevard. And by the way, it's boomerboulevard.com. He was talking, I started to ask him about his website yeah. address, and we got talking about something else, and there you go, Bob. <laughs> boomerboulevard.com. And by the way, Bob, I was visiting there a couple of weeks ago. You have not been forgotten. I have something to tell you. Yes, my dear. We have had bears in our neighborhoods down here. I was seeing the email about that oh, between you and Dan. And just today, I discovered that we had two bears at the same time. The first one, I don't know where it went, but the second one stayed hanging around. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's a big bear. It's 200 pounds. But they're juveniles. They got chewed away from Mama because it's time for... At, two, at age one and a half or two, it's time for the babies to get out on their own. And I guess they, were, they had to have been males looking to establish their own territory. But this little guy was roaming in people's backyards and peeking in garbage cans. <laughs> they finally put a huge cage on the back of a truck with a ramp, mm-hmm. and they put donuts in it. <laughs> that's how, that's, that was the comment that... Uh, well, Dan, Dan made okay. That donuts would work on Walden. They did. They put a whole pile of donuts in there. <laughs> that's, that's the way they caught the bear. He I went w- in for dinner. I, I and w- he didn't come home. Yeah, but see, I would like honey. Yeah, uh, there you go. Honey, honey, there poop bear. I, I guess that would have worked too, except it's pretty sticky. Donuts, donuts. donuts. Like I'll messy. take donuts. Yeah, I, Patricia likes donuts too. That's good. I like donuts too. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, the pictures and the film clips that they have of this mm-hmm. bear just wandering around people's backyards. <laughs> it's really a hoot. He started out at the Yacht Club, which is really downtown Fort Myers. Uh-huh. And he roamed around the Yacht Club for a while and just kept moving. And He must have good taste if he started He must have good taste if he at the Yacht Club, for crying out loud. Listen, and the houses he was visiting are on the river. And these are not $29 houses, you know. <laughs> these are ones that are in the upper end of the uh, of the real estate market. But there he was just kind of roaming around looking for, looking for dinner. He must have been very hungry because you don't find bear food out in the backyard That's unless you've got true. fruit trees. They'll eat fruit. <laughs> but anyhow, he had donuts for dinner and didn't come home. <laughs> And poor little bear. So the fish and wildlife people took him off down the road, and they were going to keep him and check him out and make sure he was healthy and put a tag in his ear, and then they're going to bring him to a reserve. I don't know if it's a preserve or a reserve, but he's going to a controlled environment because they keep coming back. (laughs) They bring him to the woods, and the bears keep coming back. But anyway, this one had good taste. Hello there. You're on with Patricia. Hello, you two. Hi, Celeste. Celeste, hey. how are you? This is Celeste in Texas. How are you doing? I'm okay. I heard you mention my name last week, but I never could I get in to tell you hello. 
you must have had a word for me. I certainly did. Are you hanging? You have your seatbelt on tonight, right? All right. I've got it. <laughs> and it's that bad. They self. They self. trying to win. They self some money. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I didn't know where I had heard it, and then I heard it again. Who is the guy? Steve is his name, and he did, I think, the Oscars one time. Um, uh, Stephen Colbert? No. No, Steve, no. She, I Steve, don't know if she's talking Steve, about George Steven Jr. She, Steve Martin? I'm, I'm Family Feud. He does Family Feud. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, well, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, it's the guy who does Family Feud, and he's looking at both. The, they've got two piles of contestants, and they're all families. And he looks over, and he says, and they're trying to win themselves some money. Oh, and I got the shivers. I got the shivers. They said just about the they selves. Oh my goodness! Now, see, I asked you if you. I asked if you had your seatbelt on. <laughs> they sell them. Oh my goodness! That ain't, that ain't now, doesn't sound listen, too bad, cutie, does it? I, when you do your exercises, when you say you're doing your exercises, you're not yeah. going outside, are you? No, I'll go for a walk, and you know, I'll make it to the mailbox about a block away. But okay. uh, no, these are floor and stand up, and yeah. I kept hearing about the Zika virus in Florida, and of course, I thought about you first. You know. Yeah, it's on. It's on the Miami side of the state. Oh, and I'm on the Gulf side, but oh, we've got. You're handful, near. We have a handful. No, we do have a handful of cases here. You do. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Oh, that is so sad. Uh, uh, uh. I mean, how bad can it be, Walt? And I've gone through everything else. I know. I know. I've built up an immunity to everything. You have. You have. <laughs> you know, a cat have nine lives. You you have that and then some. You know. I'm, I'm down to four, I think. I'm going to add a few more to the list. So you'll, you'll have a few more lives. <laughs> don't, please don't give me that instead of money. I'll add both of them together. It'll be a package okay. deal. Okay, yeah. all right, as long as I still get the money. Yeah. So what have you been up to, Celeste? Oh, just working my heart out here. Oh. Can't say on what. <laughs> oh. Anyway, anyway um, I was, you know, I always look for today in history, and last week they had some good stuff on the radio. Now, no stuff on mm-hmm. the radio today. But a wonderful, wonderful thing happened on this day in 1965. In 1965. Wonderful thing for all of the people of the United States. Well, I was thinking, what I think of in 1965 is when New York went black. We had the blackout. No, this is something much more wonderful. Than no, that. It, it wasn't the Civil Rights Act. It was... Yes. Yes. It was? It was. No, well, 65, no. Um, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act today in 19... Voting Rights, okay. Uh, isn't that Good wonderful? Deal. Wow. So, one of the most it. wonderful things. It was fascinating last night. We played the last of the four-part Convention World Conventions, and just they did such a remarkable job explaining 
uh, you know, the politics of the Democrat Party. And it was just a, it was a really interesting look at how the conventions were all run back in those days. Now, when did you play that? We played that last night at 10 o'clock. Oh, or midnight. Well, you'll hear yeah. the blue. You'll hear the blue. You know, it'll be replayed. It'll be replayed. On, on the blue. On the blue? What time is, is Oh, look, it's Friday night. blue, okay. Well, she. Okay. Heard think twice. she'll be back on again. Uh-huh. It'll be heard twice. Oh. It, it, the first time, we'll figure this out, it's 5.30 in the morning, Eastern Time. That's the first time on Mondays. And the next time would be uh, 6.30 in the evening, Eastern Time. Yeah. So, no, okay, we had one prime time and one are in the you morning. Me? No, yeah, one in the morning, one at one at night. Okay, oh. prime time. Uh huh. Okay, at prime time. Okay. So, 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 but yeah, so that's this week, this Monday, you'll hear part three, which was the beginning, and then the following week will be part four, the wrap up. Great. Yeah. Oh, that is great because that's such an interesting. Um, thing that you're doing there. It was fun. Walden, is your email uh, Walden Hughes at yes, US, yesterday. yesterdayusa.com? Uh-huh. Okay, because I, I sent you an email about Paul Harvey, which shouldn't be said over the years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can do lots of stuff. I sent We're allowed out to play. Walden about, says we are untethered. That's true. <laughs> I didn't like him at all. <laughs> he was he was very in cahoots with the John Birch Society, which is one of the worst things we ever had in this country. But isn't it amazing? It's, isn't it amazing of Joe Kennedy that was responsible for him to go national? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. It it's is. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Joe, Joe Kennedy never was one of Rose, Roosevelt had to summon him home from, That's true. from England because <laughs> he was siding with the Nazis, mm-hmm. so he's never been one of the one of our favorites, you know. So. Uh, now, the sons are totally different, but their dad was really right-wing. But it's just, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Did you know that Paul Harvey was discharged from the services? Yeah, he was wounded. No, they said it was for a mental condition. Well, if you look at the books right now, but it was, I, I, I haven't read the entire. But he, he did serve, and he had, he would, had medical issues. I know that. He had a, he had a lot of mental problems yeah. with. Um, Oh, what kind of uh, aggressive, passive-aggressive uh, mental problems? I think what really shaped his life, his dad was murdered. His dad was a, was a police officer in Oklahoma. And yeah. His, and his dad was murdered. I read that. And, that. and so he had a lot of bad memories about his <laughs> early life. You know, because, you know, it's just basically he and his mom struggling through Oklahoma and all the small towns. So for years, but, he, he never really wanted to look back upon his early childhood life because, you know, losing a dad like yeah. that was a major impact on his life. And the other thing that I didn't like about him, uh, 
you know, I was very young when that was going on, but what I didn't like about him, he was a big sympathizer with Joe McCarthy. The McCarthy. He was definitely part Yeah, he was definitely one of the anti communist spokesperson. And that's why yes, it was interesting. Look what Joe McCarthy did mm-hmm. to, to innocent people in show business, in the movies. All of the people that lost jobs and all over that for that communist mm-hmm. scare, people were getting fired right and left. That's why last night she listened to it. It's interesting how with the new cast we played in the 50s, and then later as you get through the mid 60s and 70s, it's a, it's a more gentle, mild Paul Harvey. It's a very interesting well, look at. It needed to be, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> It really needed to be kinder and gentler, I'll tell you, because Joe Joe McCarthy was a blight on Mm -hmm. this nation. He was a horrible man. And do you remember the the man who stood up to him, what he said? I've seen the documentaries, you bet. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What did the man who stood up to him, he was trying to persecute a a young man in the Army for having communist leanings. Right. And what did his lawyer say? I said, sir, mm-hmm. has you no decency? Right. That's right. one of the most famous lines in politics. Mm-hmm. Have you no decency? You've never seen that film clip? Yep, I have. Yeah. I have. Yeah. And finally, that's when they begin to turn on McCarthy and, of course, turned him out of office mm-hmm. finally. But... He did so much harm to so many people. And Paul Harvey liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what night are you having the second night of Paul Harvey? Uh, next coming Friday. Well, I'll watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow tomorrow we'll have Eddie Cannon's grandson on. And then uh, on August 14th we'll have... Uh, Perry Huntoon with her big band special, and then we pre-recorded. Good. Oh, how wonderful! We pre-recorded a bunch of war with Jimmy Yeah, he does a great job. Yeah, he does a great he job. really, really does. Yeah. Well, they sells. I like that. <laughs> I think from now on, Patricia, I'm just going to say they sell. <laughs> I'm trying. To I win like this that. I'm trying to win this competition, Celeste. <laughs> they sailed. <laughs> well, firstly, I don't like they sailed. <laughs> anyway, I hear, I hear, really, I hear people on, you know, all the major uh, stations and all that. They'll say, firstly, secondly, and thirdly. I know. They, I know. They start, they start <laughs> their sentences with. Firstly, secondly, thirdly, and most importantly. <laughs> Fourthly. You know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, oh, gosh. but you sound very good, Patricia. Thank you. Yeah, you sound you. so much better. Now, Walden, in my email, I suggested yes. that you do a special, when you can, yes. on the most trusted name in all of broadcast, the most trusted... Just one name, one night? I thought we would do more than that for Patricia. <laughs> no, 
No, what I'm talking okay. about, after you get through with your uh-huh. Paul Harvey stuff, I would love to see you do a special or a night on Walter Cronkite. Okay, that's a great idea. I guess you were transferring some Walter Cronkite material here not too long ago. So, uh, you bet. that that We can do that. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah. Considering you're from the great state of Texas. Yeah. You know? Of course. We're proud of you. Yeah. I'll never forget when he looked into the CBS cameras, pulled off his glasses, yeah. and said, The president has been um, assassinated. Yep. Yeah. CBS at that time, they had the best newscasts ever. They had that whole... They had that little more boys, that they like to call them. They, was, they sprinkled out that whole, that whole CBS stock company, basically, of, of newscasters. Yeah. Yeah, they had great yeah. newscasters. Well, I'm going to be good. Jump off here so other people... All righty. Thank you for calling. But you read my email. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Now I have to go out and work again. 714-545-2071. I used up my self. Now I have to go find another one. You're going to have to. Isn't that embarrassing? That's a new goal for the wouldn't week. You think, wouldn't you think that a producer or a director or a, a language coach or somebody would tap a host on the shoulder and say, there is no such word as they self. Maybe they don't know that. The director? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. More. Oh, no. Oh. I mean. I have a weak part. <laughs> our, our, friend, our friend Neil Ellis, who worked for, for many years for NPR, he said the problem is most of the producers are under 25. They don't know anything. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, this is terrible. Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. I came out of my chair when I heard that. <laughs> oh, they self. They're going to win money for they self. Well, Mom gets on my case for using the word ain't a lot, so what can I say? No, I mean, that, that's different. That's different. I mean, that, that's grammatically inappropriate. <laughs> it's not just downright <laughs> muck. <laughs> Gee whiz. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. They sell. 714-545-2071. I'd like to talk to you, the adorable Patricia. She's here for, yeah, that's few, me. here for a few more minutes before we send her off to bed. Actually, she has, yeah, to, do, she has to do her standing up exercises. She asked me to remind yeah. her. Yeah. So well, tonight, tonight is the down on the floor exercise. Okay, down on the floor. Who yeah. won? And Two. the happy part is I can get up without any problems now. I know. That is major stuff. Major stuff. Hooray, hooray, hooray. I know. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> I look like a three-year-old. <laughs> you know the way the three-year-olds, you know, they stand on their little feet and uh-huh. they kind of push themselves off the floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> All I need are the, the little high-top shoes, the little white shoes sure. that the youngsters wear. Sure. Oh, that would be cute. Patricia, you know. All right. In, oh, in my little high-top shoes. Yes. I hope this is somebody who has high-top shoes in size 8. We'll find, we'll find out. 
do you have shoes for Patricia to step into? No. You don't? Hmm. No. This is Marilyn from Converse. Hi, Marilyn. Marilyn, hi. We haven't talked to you for ages. I know. I, um, I'm, I've been uh, out for three weeks, and I went home to Wichita, Kansas. Oh. oh. Was it a good visit? Yes, it was. Oh, I'm so glad. How was the water up there? Was it different than Texas? Well, the humidity was different, you okay. know, but it, it, it's not as bad there than it, it is here in Texas, you know. Well, Texas does things in big ways, don't they? Yeah. You know? They like more heat, more humidity, more than anybody else in the world. I don't like what? I mean, I won't, you know, in a way, I'd rather live in Kansas, but but I'm living with, you know, I'm living with my husband, so I have to. <laughs> you haven't <laughs> you, you haven't talked to him about what to move. You haven't you talked. Minor uh, considerations here. <laughs> no, he he works at the military hospital here. Yeah, yeah. but they, don't they have military hospitals in Kansas? Well, yeah, but yeah, but um, that's what yeah, Patricia said. You said yeah, but Walden, you got there first. <laughs> I like to hear you say yeah, but. Yeah, but. Uh, Patricia does it yeah. better, yeah, but. Come on, Patricia. Yeah, I know yeah, she does. She, she, yeah, but. See? It sounds, it sounds like a frog. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. <laughs> She's faster than I am. She's got that New York quick draw approach. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you know what a nanosecond is? Uh, Faster than a second, right? They're much faster. Yeah. It is defined as the amount of time between a green light and the horn going off the uh-huh. Green light. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a New York minute or a New oh, York Patric- second. Patricia, I heard some information about something. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but they said that uh, my family, we were all talking, and we said that, or they were saying that the doctor said that real butter is better for you than the uh, margarine, you know. Yeah, I, I would think so. I would think yeah. so. Margarine has a whole bunch of preservatives in it. Yeah. And I am now reading labels. I am <laughs> I am forced to read labels now. It's terrible. The the diets they've got me on. I mean, I I told one doctor, I'm down to pickled beets and wallpaper. <laughs> what can I eat? <laughs> it is really a piece of work. So I've had to throw up. But you're right. But right, I'm going to have to try to find yeah. something else besides that. I can't believe it's not better because I don't I don't care for that stuff, you know. Well. Well. What? I don't know. I'm waiting for a great th- pearl of wisdom from somebody. Yeah. I don't have a pearl of, of wisdom. I'm just reading on preservatives. I am forced now to read labels more so than oh. I'm always pretty good at labels, but not the teeny weeny print. Maybe so now I'm reading the teeny weeny print. May I maybe guess read it? Are they online somewhere where you read ahead of time? I can. Uh huh. But it's it's easier to just read it while I'm in the supermarket. Ah, okay. Sure it okay. Doesn't have the bad stuff. In okay. It. So how hot is in Texas right now, Mel? And any any it's ideas? Hot. It's it's pretty hot now. You know, I can't, I can't. I didn't check the temperature a while ago, but uh-huh. it's pretty hot. So, 
Did he guys do anything in Kansas? Was it particularly a visit? Did he guys go out to eat? What was the, well, what? actually, my husband didn't go. I did. Right. I flew by myself, you know. You ran away from home? Yeah, I ran away from home. Whoa. No, he took me to the airport. He knew because, well. He wanted to know where to find you when, he, when you came back. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is cool. How many times have you flown by yourself in your lifetime? A lot. Uh, I used to go uh, so this is... a year, you know. Okay, so this was not a brand new experience. No. No. Okay. I what think special. Go ahead. I think the airlines do a terrific job to help they blind do. people. They do. They help blind people. They really do. They, they do a so, great job. You know. I I have no. What problem. do they do, Walden? They they make sure we're in our seat. If if we need help or anything, we can, you know, ring the you can ring the little buzzer. They can get get it through. Uh, when you have to change plane, they'll grab you. They'll, the 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 court up front or make sure you get from one station to another. They yeah, just, that's right. Wow. It's yep. just it's just a remarkable setup. I was yeah, I was talking to um one guy uh at an airport. I think it happened in Seattle. Uh, a lot of times for disabled people, they put them in wheelchairs. They do a thousand wheelchair rides a day. Yeah, we, they always put, they either, they either put me on a cart mm-hmm. or put me in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. you know. To me, that's amazing to think a thousand a day is how many people they're keeping track. Yeah. And I would have thought, and what size is this airport? Seattle. So it's not one so of the major it's ones. not like a Dallas-Fort Worth no. or, 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 or JFK. Or Chicago. Okay. Or LA. Oh. I, I would think that the major airports like Atlanta and Dallas Fort Worth and, and JFK yeah, now Dallas and Chicago O'Hare, I would I would believe if you told me they did five thousand minimum. And I'd pu- even believe ten thousand. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean Dallas Fort Worth, that is a huge airport. Yeah. You know. Enormous. I've only been there one time. Wow. Wow. I I would like to have stayed overnight. Just to get through the airport and see all the—it's a marvelous airport. Yes, it very much now. Moving sidewalks. They've got moving sidewalks. You remember? You you remember the stories about Colorado when Denver opened up their brand new airport? No. They were having problems with the airport. It was still brand new. It was like throwing people's luggage off the racks and different things. You know, they—it takes a while to run a. (laughs) <laughs> to make sure to get the airport running smoothly. Now I heard, now I just heard something. A friend of mine who called in here, Jeff Gilbert, his sister and mom went to Italy for three weeks. I think or at least two weeks. They came back. They've been home for a month. The, mm-hmm. His sister hasn't gotten her luggage yet. Oh, you <laughs> <laughs> So she had to be buying new that clothes. Probably in the middle of outer Slavovia. That's right. In Europe somewhere. Yeah. Her, her, her mom got like a week later, but his sister, after a month, the luggage hasn't shown up. And so... I, I think she can put in a dollar claim on this Well, the, the interesting thing, the insurance companies are saying, the airport is saying, well, before we file for the insurance claim, want to try to find it first. I would say after a month... After mm-hmm. month they're not going to find it. <laughs> yes, yes. The thing is, it's buried in a cemetery somewhere. Good grief. A month. A month. <laughs> and they're still holding out hope? Yes. <laughs> I can't. I'm just, I'm 
think it was, oh my gosh, I can't recall which comedy on television I saw a repeat a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Oh, it was The Odd Couple mm-hmm. with Tony Randall and, yep. and Jack Klugman. Yep. And Jack Klugman played the real slob. And he pulled out his suitcase, and Murray the cop, who's a real doofus, said, Oscar, I didn't know you were in Rome and Venezuela. He said, I wasn't. That's where my luggage went. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about. You come back with these stickers, and people think you're a world traveler, mm-hmm. and it isn't. It's just your luggage that's made the trip. That Good is stuff. true. That is true. Good stuff. Oh, well, Marilyn, I'm well, so the, glad that you the, called because we haven't heard from you for a while. Yeah. I, I I wanted to call, you know, and when I was in Kansas, when I was in Kansas, uh, I had trouble getting yesterday USA in, uh, see my sister, she lives in Kingman, Kansas, uh-huh. you know, and I, I had trouble, uh, getting yesterday USA there, uh, with my Victor reader because uh, I couldn't get any radio stations, you know. The, the mm-hmm. Wi-Fi connections weren't strong enough or whatever, maybe they didn't have yeah. the infrastructure. Yeah, I don't know, but that was bad. Cause so let's see, if you're going to talk to your husband to move to Kansas, you're going to have to negotiate better Wi-Fi service. Yeah. <laughs> and taxi well, I was I was going to tell you guys that, uh, you know, uh, that guy, uh, Bob, uh, uh-huh, the radio, Bob and uh-huh. uh, he was talking about, or we were all talking about the schools for the blind and everything. I remember that. Yeah. And, um... I just wanted to tell you that there were some good things that happened out of that school. I met some nice friends there, you know. Good. That's that's good. That's always important. Nothing is ever all bad. No. No. That is no. true. We we were really interested in the the kinds of things that you were talking about, things that we would never know about otherwise, that yeah. you and Harwood and a mm-hmm. couple of others experienced and could tell us about. It wasn't that we were looking for no. bad stuff, and it was just not yeah. bad stuff that you were sharing. It was part of the educational system that you were in that we didn't know anything about. Yeah. Because I had no experience with that. Because, hey, you know, California is a pretty bigger place, so they, yeah. they have structured. So it's uh, uh, you, you and Harwood and Jim and Ron gone through different experiences that a lot of us mm-hmm. were, never went through. Yeah, and you know, I read the uh, Ronnie Millsap book too, uh-huh. and he went through a lot of. I mean, that was really sad what he went through. Yeah, with the schools, with his school for the blind. You know, they were abusive and everything. You know. Yeah, it's it's a sad case. Very sad. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Melvin, for giving us a call. <clears throat> okay, and I'll be. Trying to call again next week. We do. Okay, Marilyn. Thank Take you. Bye bye. Okay. Good night. Good night. All right. We have just a few more minutes before Patricia does her exercises, Flora's exercises. She is getting. She she's working. Got she, everything all ready for me. She's getting ready for the gymnastics. You know, they're having the gymnastics and. I do. You know, and and the Olympics were on today. Yeah. Ask me if I watched them. Adorable. Yes, Walden. Did you watch the Olympics? I'm ashamed to say no. Well, it was in the sports category today. <laughs> my 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 mom and dad were trying to watch the opening ceremony last night. It was so bad with more so much commercial. 
my brother showed how you can record. So mom, that's what mom's doing. She's watching the recorded version. That way she can just skip through all the commercials. That's the way to go. Uh-huh. That's the way to go. Okay, I have some history questions for you. All righty. And these are in the appropriate time periods that we normally ask Walden questions. Okay. So should we just be all you right. and I? No, we can, okay. we can keep the lines open. Okay, if okay. there's nobody on the phone, I will ask no. you a question. Okay, go right here. Okay, we are in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. When was the first public school opened and where? Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 2002. I like your answers better than mine. 2010. Now, now, now. Oh, okay. Colonial. Yes. This is not an insurance company. This is for real. <laughs> um, bank, bank or, when it was open. Bangor, Maine, 1776. 1776. No. We're off more than 100 years on that one. Can you imagine? No. It, it was open in 1635, mm-hmm. and it was the first public school. And I want you to tell me the location. Now, we're talking 1635. Mm-hmm. So where uh, could it have? Well, I'm thinking Harvard and Yale will be located. Let's try Connecticut for Yale. Nope. Massachusetts for Harvard? It was Massachusetts, ah. but it was not Harvard. It was the Boston Latin School, which was founded on April 23, 1635. Now, what is really cool, and I didn't write all of this down. I should have done this. It, had, it has produced four Harvard presidents, presidents of Harvard University, four Massachusetts governors, and five signers of the Declaration of Independence were graduates of the school. That's amazing. Uh-huh. That's a, that, they got good lineage there. I guess they do. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a kind of fun thing to ask you. And That's the phone good. is still not on <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> when was the first census, the United States census, which was the first sentence? Uh, I, I think it's seven. When, which, I when? think it, I think the first one, I think, is 1790. That is correct. How did you know that? Well, my mom Never being... Okay. Oh, of course. Silly me. Because my, my, fam- my, ma- my mom is D-A-R, and, mm-hmm. you know, it, she's also Mayflower, and so lots of belonging association, birth, death, marriage, certificates, and the sentence. So, that's, mm-hmm. so I'm pretty familiar with that. The, se- the first sentence is 1790, and it's every, every 10 years, and people look at that for federal records to try to document things. And stuff okay, like that then too. I'll go to the next level on this. Mm-hmm. How many people total were counted in that in 1790? I think it was 3 million. It was 3.9 million, and George Washington thought that wasn't enough. Ah. Uh... He said count was too low due to marshals doing a poor job and people refusing to be counted, thinking that they would be taxed as the next step. And we've had that mentality ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to go to the government. That's probably why we Americans are who we are. We're we're just a bunch of rabble-rousers. We just want to be 
on our own around here. What do you think? Just peaceful. Yes, we we want to be anarchists with yes. benevolent leaders. <laughs> <laughs> what a mixed bag we are. My goodness. I thought I saw 3.9 million. I, that's such a, an, an astounding number for 1790. That's an interesting question. You think our attitudes are shaped by our past experiences. You know, I'm thinking about America. We we have our we have our proud lineage as Americans, so we 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 have no problem being rabble rousers or uh, we want as you said, we want our leaders to act a certain way. You know, it's sort of part of our culture that we've had and it tells you how important that is that we we expect them to abide by those techniques. Did I lose Patricia? I might have. I did. I'll make a call on the phone. And we're gonna talk to Patricia on the phone this way. On me. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened. It, it, it disconnected on me. I had no fingers on any buttons, nothing at all. Maybe your four hours went up. What do you think? <laughs> I still have four and a half minutes. <laughs> so I put you on the phone. Okay. So you think our, you think we Americans, our lineage and our in our culture and our history influence our thinking today? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think so. We are <laughs> we are an extraordinary country. We are. There is just none better in the entire world. And I think we have had to carry on from generation to generation in order to maintain that. Amen. Am I still here? Uh, you are. I'm just checking to make sure we're on the air. Um, you, you've almost disappeared on me. Okay, so I was Wait off mic. mic. I was off microphone. Um, so that's what happened. Uh-huh. Are you still there? I am. You hear me? <laughs> oh, gee, what? Oh. oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I found the themes that we were going to use that I said, gosh, they were really good, but I forgot what they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I found them. Good. These were your suggestions. If you were going to put together a radio show, what kind of music? Okay, hold on, Patricia. I don't think we're show. I don't think we're on the air. So hold on. I think we lost Skype completely. Jaws professional Patricia from FL Home, Bill Bragg, Lang. Alt tab, Skype trademark tab, online tab, Walton Hughes the tab, search at list box, Bill Bragg, Frank Red, Bill Bragg, enter, Bill Bragg, and call button. Unloading jaw, can okay, cancel, enter, Bill Bragg, and call button. Alright, everybody, we should be back. Are you sure? Yep, I hear it now. <laughs> So I guess Scott took a complete dump. It knocked Patricia off and knocked Bill Bragg out. And oh, so, so it really wasn't your fault. I can't even 
pick on you. It could have been Texas. It could have been Texas that had a little hiccup and knocked us off the map. So could have been. So okay. it's just the question was, and I want you to think about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I I miswrote it. I know what you were saying. I know what you were asking, but what I wrote is pretty dumb. So <laughs> you have to tell me. It, the sentence I have here, if you were going to put together a radio show, what kind of music would you use to build the show? And my answer is, what kind of show? I don't want Western music in the middle of a soap opera. Well, it depends on how you, uh, you, you, you depend on what show you want. Exactly. Which is why my sentence was stupid. No, it's not. It, it clarified what you wanted. That's all. Okay, what kind of... <laughs> okay, I'll... I will... See, I think it's fun listening to these radio shows with a full orchestra of 40 pieces. Oh, my goodness, yes. And it's, we're so accustomed to canned everything. Mm-hmm. Canned laughter, canned music, canned... Just everything canned. Mm-hmm. That when I listen to a radio show, I have to remind myself when I hear the music that this was live in the studio. Yes. They had orchestras there. This was not something they plugged in and said, okay, take over, we've got music. That's true. That's true. That's not the way it was. No. What a remarkable system. Just remarkable. Okay. We're having our geography questions. Walden, what state is New York City in? What state is the city of New York in? Correct. Your geography question. Let's see here. Well, Manhattan Salt is in Kansas. Um... There are lots of Brooklyns around. <laughs> See, well, it, it, okay. Geography question. You have to treat this. Is it in New, New Amsterdam? No, that is New York. Well, that's what I thought the question was. No. No? No. <laughs> New Amsterdam wasn't a state. New Amsterdam was the city. Oh. Well, I'm not from New York, so I wouldn't know that. <laughs> We know that. <laughs> I'm like you're from New York. You know? People say that to me. You don't sound like you're from New York. No, you don't. Well, not everybody lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Anyhow, no, I do not. I do not. And I live pretty close to the city. I was about 30 minutes away from downtown Manhattan. So I did have some influence. I just did. Yeah, but you get tuned it all out, my dear. Pardon? You tuned it all out. Yeah, I, I guess. No, I, it took a lot of practice for some of the words. I really had a hard time with the word S-U-R-E. Sure. Sure. I mean, been, I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly now. And the word C-O-U-R-S-E. Course. I would always say course. Um, of course, of course. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was terrible, so those were the two words. Uh, Always gave me a challenge. Uh, but I think I fixed them, I think. Anyway, all right, so my question is, you, you were supposed to ask me what country is the Panama Canal located in. Well, we never, got to the, we never got to the first one about this, where the city of New York is actually in New York, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when we say we're really poor at geography, you can tell now we are not. The pa- Panama Canal is in Panama, whatever. It's in Panama, period. Yes. <laughs> Gee whiz. Gee whiz. Did I, did I tell you on the air or did I tell somebody off the air 
about the question, and of course they cherry pick the answers. Somebody walked around like a candid microphone type thing and asked people, they had the microphone visible, and asked people, where is the Panama Canal? And they, they had it in Paris, France, had it in Russia, downtown. I mean, it was just <laughs> incredible. They thought maybe it was in New England somewhere. Sure. And the guy was saying, Panama Canal, Panama. <laughs> <laughs> it just went right over their head. Uh, Isn't that embarrassing? Well. You can say yes. Well. You can say yes. Well. Embarrassing. Well. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, it's like who was buried in Grant's tomb. Ah, who was buried in Grant's tomb? Mrs. Grant. And? Mr. Grant. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I don't think an awful lot of people know that his wife is buried yeah. with him. Amazing. And I can't remember her name. Juliet. Lillian? Ju- Ju- Juliet, I think. Julie. Oh, yeah. That's Juliet. Right. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. So, okay. All right. I've it's got some stuff here. Okay. Well, don't forget. It's getting close for you to do the four exercises. True. I'm three minutes over. Yeah, I know. I'm allowed to stay up tonight. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. Here, here's these are these are just adorable sayings. Mm-hmm. I think anyway. Oh, here's good. Here's good. What was Casey Stengel's first name for real? Frank. No. Fred. I take it you don't know. I don't know. When we went, when we got to Fred and Frank, I <laughs> his name was Charles. Charles. He did not look like a Charles. He looked like a Casey. Casey at the back. He got accustomed to mm-hmm. hearing him say that out. Sure. Anyway, his quote, the secret of success, of successful managing in baseball, is to keep the five guys who hate you away from the four guys who haven't made up their mind. <laughs> <laughs> These are so good. Uh, so good. Great line. Now, Muhammad Ali was uh, a remarkably... Intelligent, remarkably perceptive. That's the word I'm looking for. Remarkably perceptive and sensitive to life Mm -hmm. on a level that I never would have imagined. One Mm -hmm. of the things I pulled out about him is sacrifice to others is the rent you pay for your time here on Earth. Now, wow, a gripper. Wow. That is a gripper. Okay. All right, now you have to tell me which president said this. <clears throat> and and I do, well, I've got some presidential questions for you, too. In reading the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first. Who said that? Bill Clinton? No. <laughs> you know, that, that's interesting. Uh-huh. He would say something like that, wouldn't he? Yes. Very well-read man, very well-educated. So, yeah, I, I would put that on him. He, he's not the one who's quoted, but, yeah, I would I would pick him, too. George Washington. No. Thomas Jefferson. No. James Madison. <laughs> you want to keep going? James Monroe. It's going to take you a long time. It was J- Harry Truman. John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson. No. Martin Van Buren. Harry Truman said that. Harry! Yeah. Good old Harry. 
But, uh, you know, the, the farther away we get mm-hmm. from administrations, the more objective, of course, we get in yep. our, for the most part. Yep. I mean, sometimes you get a little wacky. Right. <clears throat> but it's easier to look at a presidential administration when there's a great amount of time in between. And Harry Truman is coming out much further ahead than he was right after he left office. It was fascinating. One of the things I did last night, because we listened to the convention, World Convention, mm-hmm. and it was the time, one of the things they were pulling is the deal they made with Harry, to get Harry. Harry had no idea he was going to be drafted vice president, so he had he wound up having the shortest speech, nomination speech, under a minute. And Really? Yes. And it, it, so he put ex, excerpts and everything, but it got thinking about me looking up his replacement, uh, the one that he replaced, uh-huh. Henry Wallace. Right. And it was fascinating. You should look up his Wikipedia, what he was. He was a, from Iowa, he was a farmer, uh, invented crops, one of the companies he mm-hmm. invented, just sold to DuPont for $10 billion. Mm-hmm. It was just fascinating what some of these guys were like, you know. Um, yep. And some of the most interesting ones are not the presidents, but the vice presidents. Correct. Correct. Remarkable people. And and he was a Republican. I had no idea. Did not know that. No. Roosevelt in his first cabinet selected three three Republicans to be on a cap on a cabinet, and he was one of them. Wow. How about that? Yeah. Oh well. Eighty <laughs> percent of success is just showing up. I like that. Very much. So yes. if you negotiate a forty million dollar contract for me, uh-huh. and I only have to be there eighty percent of the time. Yeah. That's not quite what he said. Anyway, all right. Before I go off and toddle off. Yes. People who were associated with the post office, famous people. Who was jazz bassist? Bassist, I guess is the he, he played bass anyway. And composer Charles Mingus. Do you well, know who he was? I know, yeah, he he's one of these jazz musicians who I don't quite get the music, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I have a hard time with jazz. I, the early jazz, love it. Mm-hmm. But as it progressed, I, I got. Oh, like, you know who? You know who else had a hard time with it? Hmm. Louis. Louis who? Armstrong. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Louis who? It was like a knock knock joke. Yeah, he he could not understand bebop or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. He, you know. Really, the the traditional jazz, where you get a jazz band, mm-hmm. where they all pick up and they right. all improvise, and they're improvising independent of each other, but they sort of blend together. Right. They right. kind of catch on with each other. I'm just lost on that. It's a I like of sounds. I like structure in my music. Yes, and I, I need to find a common thread right. in a piece of music, and I, I it just escapes me. But once that bebop or some of that jazz of the fifties came around, mm-hmm. it was it, it's not necessarily my favorite type of jazz. Not I'm like, you know, the big band had a lot of structure, so you could find mm-hmm. the melody in there. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I just get lost on the more current, on the, the more contemporary. Uh huh. I'm just 
out in the field saying, what? 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 Anyway, yeah. Charles Mingus yeah. worked in the post office. And that was before he became famous. Wow. In the 1950s. And in the 1990s, the post office honored him with his own stamp. But in his biography, they never mentioned that he was a former employee. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's amazing. Or nuts, I guess. Um, Rock Hudson delivered mail. Oh. Yeah. Bing Crosby was a postal clerk in Spokane, Washington. Okay. Walt Disney was a substitute carrier in Chicago. Okay. Harry Truman was postmaster of Grandview, Missouri. Ah. And, drum roll, Benjamin Franklin, of course, was America's first postmaster. Good old Ben. Yeah, now that's a pretty interesting list. Good old Ben. Yeah, would you would you like a baseball question? I would love a Let's baseball. Let's run a roll here. Yeah. The phone off the hook. Hmm. No, you're on the phone because I because when we lost the connection. Oh, you had to call back on the other one. I could I could call I could call I could put you on back on Skype, but I thought we were winding that's down. Because I'm 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 overdue here. Yeah. I'm overdue, but I this is such a great question. Yeah. Who was the youngest person ever to play Major League Baseball? Joe Nuxall. Could we move on? <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Do you know when he played? I think it was during the war. I think around 1944, he was 14. It was. They listed him as 15. I 15, think you're probably right. Would be, yeah, would probably be closer to yeah. true. Yeah. But you're right. It was. It was during the war, and I think. He only threw for one game. He was he was really bad. But it added a little bit of color and oh, it yeah. rose out in front of people. But they had filler uppers from all over the place. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now, one of our presidents played first base, and he was so good that the College Baseball Hall of Fame announced in 2013 it was naming its new building after this president. Who was it? George Herbert Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah. Very good. First baseman for Yale. <sighs> Reason why I knew that, I, when I went to the Richard Nixon Library here, well, not the last time, but the time before, they had a, a, a display on baseball, the history of baseball in the Richard Library, and they, were, they featured George uh, history of first base for the Yale. Well, if you stay home, I might win. <laughs> you haven't stayed home often enough. <laughs> I'm getting froggy tonight. All right. So here, here, here. What was the name of the baseball team he played for? I don't recall what Yale's nickname is. I have no idea. The Bulldogs. Oh, okay. And I don't know if that's current. Or that's probably is. There. That's probably is. He was there. Okay. What was your school mascot? Who was the school mascot? Your, what was Patricia's school mascot? We didn't have one. You didn't ha when you went to high school. You didn't have a mascot. No, I went to an all-girls. I know you did. You guys didn't have mascots. I, I suppose we could have had a bunny. Okay. I mean, it was an all-girls school. You no know mascot for an all-girls school? No, we couldn't hire any guys. To <laughs> Okay, okay. When you went to college, when you went to different colleges, when the, uh, uh, did you even notice? Did you ever notice a school mascot? Do you know 
most of the schools I went to, I, w- I went to two universities on the other side of the river and <clears throat> one college on my side of the river. This is the Hudson River we're talking about. Right. I was always going somewhere because I, I worked full-time while I was in schools, and I didn't even know if we had a football team. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that embarrassing? No. No, I could get mad and Patricia wanted the cheerleaders at the football game, can you? Well, well, if she didn't even know whether we had a football team, <laughs> I, honest to goodness, don't know. I just look at the, I'll have to look up one of the universities. Yes, she did have a mascot. <laughs> if we had a team. <laughs> you have to have a team before you can have a mascot, is that? Well, I imagine some schools would just have a mascot without a team. Yeah, you could have a school mascot. Mm-hmm. Athletic. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. You know, I mean, you know, just, I went to I went to a school with our our mascot's an ant eater. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I think that's really cute. Ant eaters are cute. <laughs> they, they've got this this snout that ferret around in a termite nest. Uh huh. It's just and the, and a tongue that reaches down the block. Right. Really good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. I, I have a question for you. Yes, my dear. Um, now, I, I don't know how to ask this, because if I ask it the way it should be asked, I'll give away the answer. Oh, well. Calvin Coolidge had a thing that he did every once in a while to make sure that his staff was doing what they were supposed to be doing. Right. What did he do? Right. Uh, he didn't wear shoes. <laughs> that has nothing to do with checking on his staff. He had to check on him. No, he he did something that I think was really fun. He he swept walk. He walked around at night in his sleep to check check on people. He did big checks. Did you have dinner tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was a weird meal. My mom's never going to serve it again. Yeah, it was di- it was different. What was it? Uh, it was a hot pie. She was not happy. Of sausage, bacon. Vegetables, right? You know, uh, cabbage and different yeah. things, and the, the the stuff kept sliding off the fork because so it had so much oil and things. Oh, it was kind of mushy. Yeah, so mom wasn't happy with that. Okay. So, so. all right. Well, here here is your final question. Mm-hmm. Or <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm froggy here. Hold no, you 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 sound so perfect. There I way. go. Okay. Calvin Coolidge, mm-hmm. every once in a while, would press all the buttons on the president's desk yeah. and then hide and watch his staff run in and oh, geez. missing. Then he knew he wasn't in his office. Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> and Calvin Coolidge has such a straight-laced, almost mm-hmm. stern look about him. And you know, He didn't talk. He was virtually zero on conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite remarkable that we have quotes from him. But this is this is, I mean, this is fun. He really was checking on his staff, but he would hide. He would hide in his own office and count how many came. Jeez. <laughs> After he Jeez. all the offices, I think that's it. Jeez. Oh Jeez. well. Okay, I am finished. All right, my dear. I have, I have to do the floors exercises. Patricia's getting ready for the Olympics in tw- four years yeah. from now. Yeah. I misspoke. I said two hours. I'm down to an hour on these things. I'm, I'm getting really good. Well, see you're, you're, see, you're getting ready for the Olympics. Is that what it is? Yes. I think you have to do something better than walk to the mailbox. Well, hey, we start, we start, 
qualify for the Olympics. Well, that's for the sprints. You know, you're getting ready to do the sprints. Getting ready know. to sprint. Yeah. This is good. You have to breathe to do this as well. <laughs> oh, my. I have a lot of catching up. You do it. Oh. You do it. I'm doing fine. You do I'm it. I have faith. I do, too. We're, we're doing everything small. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So. All right, my dear. Oh, oh, oh. I am trundling. Wherever that word came from, it was one that my mother and my grandmother used. I am trundling off to the other room. Okay. I have no idea what it means. Well, look it up. You send me an email That's about it. Trundling. Huh? So you can send me an email about that, whatever trundle. It's an Irish word. It is? I don't know. I'm just I making it up. I don't know. You know my, my mom was German. Uh-huh. My grandparents were German. So... It can't be an Irish word. Well, she married an Irish fellow, didn't she? That's true. So maybe maybe she inherited it. <laughs> I'll have to go look it up. Oh, we will be back next week. Yes, my dear. Promises. Yes, my dear. We'll, we'll be back next week. All right. Have fun with those exercises. I will go do my exercise. All right, my Good night, dear. everybody. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Uh, bring this down. Let's look back upon World War II, August 14th. I'm mutual. And so let's do that. Jaws Professional 1 Friday MBS 12 noon 2 p.m. August 14 1945. Unloading Jaw. Can't OK. Enter 1 Friday. And here's your musical appetizer, presented by the makers of Goulden's Prepared Mustard, famous for its quality and fine flavor, and equally popular as a seasoning in cooking. The haunting rhythm of a Spanish favorite is the first number by the orchestra. It's called Perfidia.
this is the WOR newsroom in New York. We have a minor correction in the bulletin just aired from Washington. The press conference now being called in Washington is by the President's Secretary, Charles Ross, and not by the President himself, Mr. Truman. The press conference now being called in Washington is by the Secretary of the President, Charles Ross, and not by the President. We return you now to the program in progress. Here's our pianist and the reminiscent notes of Mexicali Rose. from the WOR newsroom is more information on the uh, activities of presidential secretary Charles Ross and the president. The second secretary of the Swiss legation has arrived at the State Department in Washington. The second secretary of the Swiss legation has arrived at the State Department. However, there is no reason to believe so far that he may be carrying the notes from the Japanese government as transmitted through Bern, Switzerland. More news in just a few moments, and we return you to the regular program. Because of the acute shortage of mayonnaise and salad oils, many wise women today are preparing their own mayonnaise or salad dressings and using new recipes. 
For real tastiness in your salad dressing, simply do this. Just add a teaspoonful of Goulden's Natural Rich Brown Mustard to your dressing or to mayonnaise made at home. Why, you'll have a reputation for salad second to none. We have just uh, received word from Washington that Presidential Secretary Charles Ross has just announced that the Swiss government in Bern, Switzerland, has not received any reply from the Japanese as yet. That confirms the reports which we've received from Bern, and that makes it official uh, from the United States government. There has been no reply from the Japanese as yet at Bern. That will mean a considerable delay, a still further delay, in uh, any final uh, announcement which would be forthcoming from Washington. The uh, situation begins to uh, perhaps change its color just a bit as we go along now, and one wonders why there has been such a long delay in the transmission of this bulletin, uh, this uh, information from Japan to, to Bern. We're going to move over to another a point in our newsroom to get a better look at the printers. Here's a bulletin from San Francisco. Tokyo Radio said today in a broadcast monitored by FCC that the Japanese reply to the Allies, quote, is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern, end of quote. The uh, Tokyo report appeared to be some hours uh, behind developments because earlier the Japanese had said that the note had been transmitted some time ago. That is... Uh, actually a total of several hours ago and should have been in Bern. We return you now uh, to the program in progress with one more flash before we do. Uh, just one moment, Dave. We understand from another source that the uh, communication received at the White House announced earlier by uh, Secretary Ross was not the communication expected and that we have been anticipating. No, it has not arrived at the White House as it has not arrived at Bern either. And when it does arrive at Bern, if it does, it will take some time to transmit it to Washington. Now back to the program in progress. Don't you leave me Off you would go in the midst of day Never, never to know
The piano steps into the spotlight with Toy Piano Minuet. natural rich brown color and fine flavor has received awards at five world's fairs. Notice when you pick up a jar of Goulden's mustard, it's appetizing color. That rich brown color is visible proof that it contains the more costly and more flavorful brown mustard seeds. The choice mustard seeds, rare spices, and mellow vinegars in Goulden's are selected for the fine flavor they add to foods during cooking. Be sure to ask your grocer for Goulden's prepared mustard. Until it's musical appetizer time again, remember, for flavor with a thrill, add Goulden's natural rich brown mustard to stews, sauces, and gravies during cooking. Spread it on meats before cooking. Now, more than ever, it pays to season well. The music heard on this program was recorded. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Henry Gladstone will report the latest news following station identification. A transcription. Musical code spells T-E-K, the toothbrush value of the USA. Tech toothbrush, value immense, 50-cent quality for 29 cents. Tech toothbrush, made with the finest nylon bristles. The Bamberger Broadcasting Service, W-O-R, New York.
It's 12.30, Tuesday, August 14th. This is Henry Gladstone reporting from the WOR Newsroom. This program is brought to you by Sweetheart Soap, the soap that agrees with your skin. Now, here's an important point of extra daintiness to look for when you buy Sweetheart Soap. Unlike soaps that lie flat, only one tiny part of Sweetheart's oval cake touches the soap dish. That means air gets under practically all around to help dry it quickly. This helps avoid unpleasant, wasteful, melted soap. Your cake of Sweetheart is always more delightfully dainty. Today, get Sweetheart soap and the oval cake that stays drier. Remember, Sweetheart is the soap that agrees with your skin. And now the news. The White House announced at 12.22 p.m. today, that's approximately 13 minutes ago, that the Swiss government had informed the United States the Japanese cables received in Bern, Switzerland this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross called the press into his office and read to them a dispatch received by the State Department from the Swiss government. It contained a memorandum stating that the Swiss legation had received the following open cable from its political department in Bern. Ross said it was received in Washington at 10.59 a.m. today. Ross said it read, Very urgent, 7.60. The Japanese legation reports that the coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. The message was signed, Politique. And Ross said the memorandum came to the State Department from the Swiss legation. He then read the memorandum, which stated, with reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley, chargé d'affaires ad interim, and the Honorable James F. Burns, Secretary of State, the Swiss legation wishes to confirm receipt of the following open cable from the political department in Bern, received at 10.59 a.m. August 14th. And then came the very urgent message. It is possible that before many more hours have passed, we may have an official announcement from the White House that Emperor Hirohito and the samurai have bowed to the Allies. President Truman has been in the study since 7.15 this morning, waiting for Tokyo's formal reply to our terms. The answer definitely is expected today. And the White House has just been informed that the Japanese reply to the Allies has not been received, as I just told you. I'm repeating this, the Swiss legation in Washington has informed the White House that coded cables received in Bern do not contain the Japanese answer. The Tokyo Radio declares that the Japanese note now is on its way to Bern. Unofficial foreign broadcasts indicating that the Japanese have accepted the allied terms have touched off celebrations throughout the country. And that's the way the matter stands officially so far. The feeling still is one of expectation. At least four coding and decoding operations and three radio telegraph transmissions are involved in bringing Japan's expected surrender reply to Washington. Here are the steps that probably would have to be taken to transmit such a message from the Orient. One, the Japanese translate the reply into English. Two, the message is transcribed into diplomatic code. Three, Tokyo contacts Radio Swiss and the message is transmitted. How long such transmission would require depends upon the speed and number of operators employed. Four, the Japanese officials in Bern, Switzerland, receive the message and decode it. The message, then, is delivered to the Swiss political state department. Six, the Swiss code it and deliver it to the uh, telegraph office. The telegraph office transmits it to the New York office. New York transmits it, transmits it to Washington, where it's speeded by messenger to the Swiss legation. And the ninth step, the Swiss legation decodes the message and delivers it to our state department. It was thought among officials in a position to know that the Tokyo reply would be in English because English is Japan's second language. 
a corresponding message in Japanese might be sent to the Japanese legation in Bern for their own study. How long all these operations would require, no one in an official capacity was willing to guess, pointing out that the length of reply would determine the time necessary for coding, decoding, and transmission. Swiss reports indicated that last Saturday's message from the United States to Japan moved out of Bern approximately seven hours after it was delivered to the Swiss legation in Washington by our State Department, and that the Japanese, after requesting that message be repeated, acknowledged receipt about ten hours after transmission began in Bern. While the Allied world awaits the next development, the war still is flaming on every sector in the Pacific and in Asia. Nothing short of a direct order from the Allied commanders will stop the fighting. This is the situation even though the trigger was pulled on peace celebrations many hours ago all around the world. A variety of foreign broadcasts were responsible for this latest outbreak. The Tokyo radio said that an imperial announcement accepting the Potsdam proclamations will be forthcoming soon. A Swiss broadcast has been heard by British listeners asserting that Japan has accepted the capitulation offer. Another broadcast heard in New York indicated the Japs were sending urgent wireless messages to their ships remaining at sea. Like the rest of the world, the British cabinet is standing by for the text of the Japanese answer. There may be quite a long wait due to the complications of translations, codings, and decodings. We take you now to Washington. Uh, we're not ready to go to Washington as yet, so now back to Henry Gladstone. Well, the Japanese, too, may be getting ready to spring the news on the homeland. The Domei Agency has sent out an advance dispatch about a message from the emperor, which is to be read to the people gathered before the bridge leading to the palace grounds in Tokyo. That's a gathering place for the public when unusual events are at hand. This message is said to express Hirohito's extreme concern for what it calls the calamity caused by the United States. Just a short time ago, the Domei Agency broadcast a flowery dispatch which said that today the imperial decision was granted. Those are the words of the broadcast. The imperial decision was granted. What decision was involved was not specified, but apparently had to do with the surrender. But perhaps it would be better if I read you the text of the Dome Dispatch, and here is how it started. How shall the 100 million people filled with trepidation reply to the emperor? His majesty's subjects are moved to tears by his majesty's boundless and infinite solicitude. August 14, 1945, the imperial decision was granted. The palace grounds are quiet beneath the dark clouds, continued the Japanese dispatch. Then it went on to say, Honored with the imperial edict in the sublime palace grounds, the mob of loyal people are bowed to the very ground in front of the Fujibasi Bridge. That's the bridge that leads to the palace. Their tears flow unchecked. Alas, in their shame, how can the people raise their heads, said the Dome broadcast. With the words, Forgive us, O Emperor, our efforts were not enough. The heads bow lower and lower as the tears run unchecked. Ever since December 8, 1941, when we received the imperial rescript, causing His Majesty deep anxiety. And at this point, Dome broke its transmission to ask editors to hold up the dispatch. Just what happened is a mystery, and the Dome agency never did finish the dispatch. But later it sent out this message to editors. Tomorrow, August 15th at noon sharp. We take you now to Washington. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Fulton Lewis Jr. speaking once again from the Mutual Studios across the street from the White House. We have received another setback in the, so far as time is concerned, in the expected arrival of the Japanese reply to the last Allied ultimatum for surrender. The cable that came to Bern, Switzerland, early this morning, arriving there at 7 o'clock, a long-coded cable which was reported here and was announced by Secretary Ross at the White House earlier today at about 9.30 a.m. as being 
the long-awaited cable is now shown to be otherwise. Secretary Ross just called an emergency press conference, dropped the bombshell into the newspaper men who have been momentarily expecting the actual receipt of the Japanese reply uh, to be transmitted to Secretary of State uh, Burns by the Swiss legation here. Mr. Ross called us in and said that he would read the following statement without comment. And he read to us the following statement. With reference to the telephone conversation this morning, and let me say that this, this statement is a memorandum from an official memorandum from the State Department to the, from, from the Swiss legation to the White House. It reads as follows. With reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley, Charge of Affairs and uh, Art Interim of Switzerland, and the Honorable James uh, Burns, Secretary of State, the legation of Switzerland wishes to confirm the receipt of the following open cable, an open cable being an uncoded cable, from the political department in Bern at 10.49 a.m. August the 14th. That was about an hour before this press conference. And here is the exact verbiage of the cable that was received by the Swiss legation here at 10.49 a.m. today from the Swiss political department in Bern. Listen. Very urgent. Jap legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. I'll read that to you again. Jap legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. That is the cablegram that was received by the Swiss legation here at 10.49 a.m. this morning from the political department of the Swiss government at Bern, Switzerland. The long and short of it is that this now throws the entire matter back on the uh, authenticity of the Japanese radio. So far as we are now able to understand, so far as the information officially, or even backdoor officially, that we have here in Washington at the present time, not only has the Japanese reply to President Truman's ultimatum not been received here in Washington, it has not even been received in Bern, Switzerland, by the Japanese legation there to be turned over to the Swiss government. Apparently, it has not even left Tokyo. Therefore, all of the authenticity that we have, all of the backing, all of the authority for the fact that uh, the Japanese finally are accepting, if they are, the uh, terms of that ultimatum, the sole authority that we have for it now is the authority of the Tokyo Radio, its statements, and the broadcasts from the Tokyo Radio that have been picked up and recorded by the Office of War Information to the effect that great crowds had gathered in the streets outside of the Imperial Palace, weeping, bowing to the ground, and asking the forgiveness of the Emperor for not having made a better performance to bring the war to a successful conclusion for Japan. Perhaps those broadcasts are all true. Perhaps uh, the Japanese are preparing to send through their uh, final acceptance their full-fledged acceptance of these uh, terms. But so far as official channels are concerned, all we know is that thus far nothing has even reached Bern, Switzerland, let alone having come through to the United States. We now return you to New York. You've been listening to Fulton Lewis in Washington. Now back to Henry Gladstone in the WOR newsroom. Apparently the Japanese government, press and radio, have not yet told the Japanese people exactly what's going on. But many of them must have a fair idea by now. More than two million leaflets outlining the Allied reply to Japan's first surrender proposal have been dropped on the enemy homeland in the past few days. 
The Japs, however, also are being hit with bombs and shells at every turn. Even as the Tokyo radio is broadcasting that Japan would surrender, hundreds of American superfortresses staged a 5,000-ton demolition raid on southern Honshu. Hard off Tokyo Bay, Admiral Halsey's third fleet plowed around, and although there is no news of any fleet action today, Pacific Fleet Headquarters has announced that operations will not be called off until official word is received from Washington. On the Asiatic continent, Tokyo has admitted new gains by the Soviet armies pouring across Manchuria. And in southern China, Chungking announces that thousands of Japanese troops have been cut off by an offensive against the railroad town of Tungan. But throughout the nation, from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, the imminence of the Japanese surrender overshadows all else in public interest. Millions of joyous Americans have accepted Japanese surrender as a fact, even though it still is not official, and wild celebrations have been touched off. New York's Times Square was a scene of wild demonstrations today. I'll have the stock market report after this brief message of special interest to women. Ladies, just compare well-known beauty soaps and see if your own fastidious preference doesn't lead you to choose sweetheart soap in the quick-drying oval cake. Not another one of the eight leading beauty soaps offers you this extra daintiness. Unlike many soaps that lie flat, only one part of Sweetheart's oval cake touches the soap dish. That means air gets under it to dry it fast, helps avoid unpleasant, wasteful, melted soap. So for gentle, thorough beauty care, baths, baby, fragrant shampoos, get Sweetheart in the oval cake that stays drier. Remember, Sweetheart is the soap that agrees with your skin. Stock prices were up this noon. Trading was moderate. Noon prices included U.S. Steel 67 and 5 eighths up 3 eighths, Bethlehem Steel 77 and a half up 3 eighths, General Motors 67 and 5 eighths up a half, Chrysler 111 up a half, Anaconda 32 up an eighth, Nickel 32 and a quarter down an eighth, United Aircraft 25 and three quarters unchanged, Standard Oil of New Jersey 59 and three eighths up an eighth, New York Central 24 and three quarters up five eighths, Pennsylvania Railroad 35 and three eighths up three eighths, Santa Fe 87 and a half up a half, Edison 30 unchanged, Telephone 179 and a quarter up a quarter. Listen to the news every afternoon, Monday through Saturday at 12.30. This program was presented by Sweetheart Soap, the soap that agrees with your skin. And now this is Henry Gladstone wishing you a pleasant afternoon. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System, a transcription. Chewing gum, it's keen chewing gum, helps keep teeth white. Dentine is delicious. W-O-R, New York. This is Albert Mitchell's daytime Answer Man program at your service. This program is presented as a service to you to give you the answers to your questions and help you out with your problems. All you have to do is send in your question, whatever it may be. And provided that question has a definite answer that's not of a personal nature and does not violate professional ethics, you will get the answer and without charge. Some of the questions you send in will be answered over the air in this series of broadcasts. All will be answered by mail. So don't forget to enclose a stamped address envelope. And now, here he is, your daytime answer man. Good afternoon. And what question do we begin with today? This one from a woman of New York City. Is there really such a thing as a pair of left-handed scissors? Yes, manufacturers of cutlery really make left-handed scissors and shears. Next, a youngster of Somerville, New Jersey asks, How tall and fat do elephants grow to be? Elephants grow to be anywhere from 8 feet to 11 feet tall and away from 4,000 to 10,000 pounds. A note from a woman of White Plains, New York reads, 
the opinion of my family is divided on this question of etiquette. When a person receives an announcement of a marriage, is the person obligated to send a wedding gift? We'd appreciate your help. When a person receives a wedding announcement, it isn't necessary to send a wedding gift, though many people do. It's entirely up to you. On the other hand, if you receive a wedding invitation, it's generally considered to carry with it the obligation of sending a gift. A Manhattan woman inquires, how long has there been a ban on bingo in New York City, in particular on church bingo? There has been a ban on bingo, a law against it, in churches and out for the past 50 years in the state of New York. For a while, this law was not enforced against churches, but still, bingo was illegal there. This question comes from a young woman of Rocky Point, Long Island. What kind of beauty preparations did the ancient Romans use? Greek beauty preparations primarily, for when the Romans swept down on Greece, they captured all the beauty doctors of that nation. Their knowledge of the arts of beauty in which the Athenians excelled was quite complete. Their preparations included hair dyes, wave sets, perfumes, various ointments for the skin and complexion, fingernail polish, rouge, eye shade, and powder. In Greece and then in Rome, both men and women used these preparations. Next, a Hawthorne, New Jersey woman asks, what is the best way to roast corn over an open fire, with the husks on or off? With the husks on, cut off the excess silk from the ears of corn and then dip the corn in cold water for a minute. Be sure your fire is burned down to just a bed of coals and put your ears of corn in the coals or on a grill over them. Turn the ears often and when the husks are charred, the corn is ready to be eaten. A New York City woman inquires, which man has the longest name, Churchill or Stalin? Churchill's full name is longer by five letters. There were 25 letters to Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin, but 30 letters to Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. And a woman of Newburgh, New York writes, Telling my husband about when I was a girl and lived in Missouri, I said we had robins there the year round. He didn't believe me. Of course, I could be wrong, as I often am. Am I? No, there are robins in Missouri the year round. The robins that nest in Missouri during the summer spend their winters near the Gulf of Mexico. Then, when they've departed, the more hardy Canadian robins come south to spend their winters in Missouri. A woman writes from Woodstock, Connecticut. My son, who is 11 years old, would like to know the answer to these questions. Does a gallon of motor oil contain more liquid than a gallon of gasoline? And how much does each one weigh? A gallon of motor oil and a gallon of gasoline contain the same amount of liquid, but a gallon of oil weighs seven and a half pounds, while a gallon of gasoline weighs only six pounds. A woman of Port Chester, New York asks, Will you please tell me how often they choose someone for the Hall of Fame? Names to be inscribed in the Hall of Fame for great Americans are chosen every five years by a college of electors consisting of approximately 100 men and women of distinction who represent every state in the Union. 73 people have already been chosen. The busts and tablets in the Hall of Fame are all gifts of individuals or associations. A woman living in Marion, Old New York writes, Please tell me the way to make a poison mash to kill cutworms. Mix four ounces of white arsenic of Paris green with five pounds of dry bran. Then grind two lemons or oranges in two quarts of water sweetened with one pint of molasses. Next, wet the bran mixture with the liquid and stir until the mixture is crumbly. Place a tablespoon of the mash around each plant that the cutworms are after. Do this in the evening, for this pest feeds at night. A note from a Sayville, Long Island woman reads, Where was Jimmy Stewart born? And please settle this argument for us. Has he been in the Air Force less than five years or more than five years? Less than five years, and Jimmy Stewart was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania, on May 20th, 1908. A listener of Hawthorne, New Jersey asks, 
What year did Cocktails for Two become popular? If you mean the song, Cocktails for Two started to become popular in 1934. It was written by Arthur Johnston and Sam Coslow. And a young woman writes from Smithtown, Long Island. I'm anxious to find out how the word bachelor came to be used in the terms Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science. In its Latin form, bachelor signified a farm servant and was then applied to the cultivators of certain land owned by a religious body. Next, it came to mean novices in monasteries and likewise persons passing through the probationary stages of knighthood. In the institution of universities, it was popularly used to denote those who had just entered on their academic career. And in the 13th century, the Pope bestowed the title upon those members of the University of Paris who had not yet reached the rank of master or doctor. Subsequently, bachelor came to be conferred as the lowest academic degree in all universities. Next, a woman of Moosup, Connecticut asks, Were many of our flyers saved during the war by landing in Sweden? Quite a few. According to Swedish authorities, 303 foreign planes were forced down in their country during the war. 140 of these were American. And a Brooklyn listener writes, I know this is a toughie, but I'm anxious to find out where in the British Isles the most tea is drunk. According to tea statisticians, the most tea is drunk in Lancashire in the Midlands, north of Birmingham. This is a mining district, and most of the miners drink nothing but tea, and the pot is on the stove 24 hours a day. A letter from a Forest Hills, Long Island woman reads, One of my children got tar on my white living room curtain. I have greased it, but the tar just spreads. Do you suppose I shall have to dip the curtain in kerosene? No, you can remove the tar stain from the curtain by sponging the spot with a cloth dipped in turpentine. Then rinse the curtain out with clear water. You may have to repeat this treatment several times. A Teaneck, New Jersey woman asks, Can a person who lives in Teaneck see the same clouds at the same time as a person who lives in Green Pond 40-odd miles away? Yes, if the clouds are high enough, they can be seen quite easily by both persons. A woman of Hackensack, New Jersey inquires, What's a quick, easy way to peel fresh apricots? Place your fresh apricots in a colander and dip them for a moment in a pan of boiling water. Next, dip them in a pan of cold water for three minutes and then peel off the skins. You'll find that the skins will come off quite easily because of this bath. A woman writes from New York City. I would like to have a short biography of Molly Corbin and the inscription on her grave in West Point for a DAR meeting. Molly Corbin went to war as a nurse and took her husband's place beside his cannon when he was wounded until she lost an arm by a cannonball. The inscription on her tomb in the cemetery at West Point tells the story perfectly. In memory of Margaret Corbin, a heroine of the revolution known as Captain Molly, 1751 to 1800, who at the Battle of Fort Washington, New York City, when her husband John Corbin was killed, kept his field piece in action until severely wounded, and thereafter, by act of Congress, received half the pay and allowances of a soldier in the service. She lived, died, and was buried in the Hudson River Bank near the village now known as Highland Falls. In appreciation of her deeds for the cause of liberty and that her heroism may not be forgotten, her dust was removed to this spot and this memorial erected by the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution in New York State, 1926. Next, uh, Yonkers Youngster asks, what family of birds does the magpie belong to? The magpie belongs to the crow family. Its scientific name is Pika, or as some say, Pika Pika. And a girl writes from Amityville, Long Island. Will you kindly tell me, if you can, what kind of a stick it is Hawaiian sweethearts give to each other to show their affection? I imagine you mean sugarcane stalks. Years ago, Hawaiian sweethearts used to transmit their love messages by means of sugarcane stalks. 
the various characteristics of the stocks determine their meanings. A New York City woman asks, who gets the money when the black market butcher finally gets caught and pays a fine for violating OPA ceiling? All monies collected in fines for violation of OPA regulations are paid into the general fund of the United States Treasury, where they're reported as income and then expended on general governmental expenses. An Elliott, Connecticut woman writes, At a small tea party I attended, the hostess wore very elaborate clothes, much finer than that which the rest of us wore. Do you think this was in good taste? No, it would have been much better for the hostess to have dressed a little less elaborately than her guests. She should have worn a simple at-home dress, and perhaps on the slightly subdued side. But maybe she didn't know how you were going to dress. A listener of Patterson, New Jersey, would like to know the deepest place in the Pacific Ocean and how it compares with the deepest place in the Atlantic Ocean. The greatest depth of the Pacific Ocean so far discovered is over 6 miles or 35,400 feet, while the greatest known depth of the Atlantic is not quite 5 miles, 30,246 feet. An Orangeburg, New York woman writes, Will you kindly tell me how to go about getting a child suffering with infantile paralysis into the Warm Springs Foundation in Georgia? The application for the admission of the child to the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation should be addressed to the registrar and accompanied by a complete medical case history from the child's attending physician. The chief surgeon of the foundation and his staff will review the case history and determine the child's medical acceptability. If acceptable and if accommodation is available, arrangements will be made by the registrar for admission of the child. A letter from a woman of Boundbrook, New Jersey reads, How can I keep pigeons from the feeding station that I have for other birds? As soon as I put the feed out, these big pigeons come down and gobble everything. And my poor little bird friends are out in the cold. I'd suggest that you build a cover of a wire screening over your feeding station, making the opening large enough for the little bird you wish to feed, but too small for the pigeons. A woman writes from Long Island City, our oil burner had a leak a few weeks ago, and there's a big oil stain on the concrete floor. I tried soap and water, but this doesn't help. What should I use? Gasoline? No, don't use gasoline, for it might cause an explosion. Instead, cover the stain with an inch or two of dry Portland cement. In two or three days, the cement should draw up most of the oil from your floor. If you haven't any cement, you can use dry hydrated lime in the same way and with the same effect. A second application with carbon tetrachloride added to the powdered cement or lime will remove even more of the stain. A woman of White Plains, New York asks, Will you kindly tell me who designed the Pentagon building in Washington, D.C.? The Pentagon building was designed by George Edwin Bergstrom of Los Angeles, California. And a Packer, Connecticut woman writes, If you have any children, perhaps you'll understand and forgive this silly question. My little boy is at that stage where he's telling jokes and asking me the answers to conundrums. His latest one is this. Why didn't they play cards on Noah's Ark? Because Noah sat on the deck. If you'd like help with a particular problem, the answer to a question that's puzzling you, just write a note to The Answer Man, W-O-R, New York 18. Please enclose a stamped address envelope. Ask any question you wish. And provided it has a definite answer that is not of a personal nature and does not violate professional ethics, you will get the answer by mail and without charge. Write the answer man, W-O-R, New York, 18. Tomorrow midday at 12.45, we'll be back with the answers to more of your questions. And what are some of those questions going to be? Well, here are just a few of them. Who's the biggest eater in the army? How do you prevent scalded milk from sticking to the pan? Why are leases signed for 99 years instead of 100? 
Has 40 days of rain ever really followed St. Swithin's Day? How big is the desert in New England? Did the Italians stop using soap before the Germans did? How do you substitute cocoa for chocolate in a recipe? And what good is a snail for mending broken glass? So join us again tomorrow midday at 12.45 for Albert Mitchell's daytime Anzaman program. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. We call your attention to a special broadcast to be presented at 1.15 this afternoon. That's in approximately 15 minutes. It'll be a roundtable discussion between Washington and New York. W-O-R, New York. 1 p.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova urges, hold war bond. <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Jack Bundy with the transcribed album time. Just want to remind you folks that an event anything of importance in the way of news takes place, why the program will be interrupted. The coming of the peace, of course, is going to mean many changes, both large and small. A large one, for example, will be the cancellation of huge war contracts. And a small change of attitude, at least, is already taking place in a certain filling station. Overheard was one filling station attendant advising another in these words. Hey, Eddie, wipe off that windshield and check those tires. The war's nearly over. It's certainly a beautiful saddle that the Chamber of Commerce at Reno has uh, donated to Admiral Bull Halsey. Although I'd like to see the Admiral put that saddle on Hirohito and ride him down the streets of Tokyo instead of the white horse. Well, we've got uh, <laughs> Tinkering Benoit in the control room today. Nothing bothers him, nothing worries him. Matter of fact, right now he's working on a new improved electric toaster for post-war newlyweds. It's supposed to throw the burnt toast right out the window. It'll be marvelous if you develop it, Mac. Okay for Super Suds, eh, what? Super Suds, Super Suds, lots more Suds from Super Suds. 
rich are longer lasting too. They're the sons with super dudes. When a lady has six children and her wash is just a fright, what's she gonna do, sister? What's she gonna do? What's she gonna do? Get that soap with super do. With that grand hard working super suds, a heavy watch seems light. Come on, sister, give the lowdown, the lowdown. How do you explain that fact? Explain that fact. Make the suds test in your bottle. See how different soaps react. See how super suds give suds so extra rich and big and thick that they're bound to get out bulky dirt and do it double quick. Super suds, super suds, lots more suds from super suds. Well, here comes Glenn Gray. He has a song about a gal who has stars in her eyes. Yes, stars in her eyes and a one-track mind with a troop train on it. Yeah. I see stars in your eyes When my lips beg your lips to surrender Stars in your eyes When we kiss and you Stars leave the skies, but the night still is bright in their splendor. Deep in your eyes, lovely stars still continue to shine. dawn may bring, no matter what you may say, there's always one little thing that always gives you away. That's a rather nice tune, Stars in Her Eyes. 
You know, if a meteorologist looked into a girl's eyes, he probably could tell weather. Well, now, personally, I like a girl with a good head on my shoulder. Much nicer. Well, here's an old song by the three sons about an old gal named Maggie, or an old girl named Maggie, whichever way you prefer. Anyway, she's a woman, but women. You know, you can't live with them, and you can't live without them. They certainly are strange creatures. You'll find that some are intrigued by a man with a past, and others are only interested in men whose potentialities point to a bright future. And, of course, quite a percentage like the men of the present. And the more expensive the present, the more they like him. But let's hear more about Maggie. Remember, if any news breaks, you'll get it pronto. They'll interrupt all programs to keep you posted on any of the latest developments. For years now, the Army has demanded that there be three sets of eyelets on its GI woolen underwear. Probably a lot of people have wondered why. In the case of Harry J. Burton, it's always been a mystery to him. When the War Production Board staged a campaign for shortcuts to save time, Burton, who happens to be a civilian employee of the Philadelphia Quartermaster Depot, brought up the question about those eyelets. Well, that stumped the army. They couldn't think of a good reason for the traditional third set. As a result, they're going to be eliminated, and it means a yearly saving of $3,700. As for Burton, he got $344 uh, as an award for the idea. Now, there's a case where curiosity really paid off. Of course, the metal shortage has taken the hooks off of dresses, but never going to take the eyes off of them. Now you've got a little ditty coming up here, a nursery rhyme called Three Blind Mice. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all run after the We interrupt Jack Bundy's program to bring you a summary of the situation up to this moment from the WOR newsroom. The Japanese have not yet replied to the Allies' surrender terms the White House was informed today. Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross made public a memorandum from the Swiss legation here shortly after noon Eastern wartime saying that coded cables received in Bern 
do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. The Tokyo Radio at 12.01 p.m. Eastern Wartime said, the Japanese government's reply to the four powers is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern. This broadcast was recorded by the FCC. Ross's disclosure came on the heels of reports, which he had himself passed on to reporters previously, that the Japanese surrender answer had been received in Bern. In a memorandum to Secretary of State Burns, the Swiss legation here said, with reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley, chargé d'affaires ad interim of the Swiss legation, and the Honorable James F. Burns, Secretary of State, the legation of Switzerland wishes to confirm the receipt of the following open, that's not coded cable, from the political department in Bern received at 10.59 Eastern War Time, August 14th. Very urgent, 760. Japanese legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. And that was signed Politique. Ross called reporters into his office to read the memo, as he said, without comment. The Swiss memorandum threw back to a Dome radio broadcast from Tokyo the only basis for the report that the Japanese would accept the surrender terms. On Saturday, the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and China agreed to accept the Japanese surrender with the emperor retaining his throne if the emperor were subjected to the orders of an allied supreme commander of occupation forces. The allies also stipulated that eventually the Japanese people must be permitted to select their own form of government. Word from the Swiss came in the middle of a day that had started off expectantly with radio reports from Bern and Tokyo saying the Japanese had framed an answer and that it was on its way to the allied capitals through the Swiss neutral diplomatic channels. Ross had announced to reporters earlier in the day that Commodore James Vardaman, President Truman's naval aide, had talked to the Swiss legation shortly after 7 a.m. and had been informed that the Swiss had received the coded surrender message in Bern. This raised expectations that the Japanese reply would be in the hands of Allied leaders in a matter of hours. When the lengthy coded message received by Japanese officials in Bern proved to be something other than the surrender reply, Swiss officials there and in Washington were informed quickly of this fact. Because of their previous conversation with Commodore Vardman, the Swiss acted hurriedly to notify Secretary Burns of the situation. Burns then went to the White House from his State Department office and apparently delivered to President Truman the Swiss memorandum. Previously, newsmen had asked Ross about reports they obtained from the Swiss legation that no surrender reply had been received either in Bern or Washington. Ross, apparently mystified by this turn of affairs, went immediately to the President. He announced the memorandum as soon as the Duke of Windsor, who had been talking with Mr. Truman, came out of the executive offices. Although Secretary Ross told press correspondents at that time that the Japanese note already was in the hands of the Swiss, the Swiss office at 10.40 a.m. Eastern War Time denied that it had yet received the message. This was followed by a Tokyo broadcast recorded by the FCC at 12.08 p.m. Eastern War Time, which said the Japanese government's reply to the four powers is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. W-O-R, New York. At 12.22 today, Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross called the press into his office and read to them a dispatch received by the State Department from the Swiss government. It contained a memorandum stating that the Swiss legation had received the following open cable from its political department in Bern. Ross said it was received in Washington at 10.59 a.m. today, and it read, Very urgent, 7.60.
The Japanese legation reports that the coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. At this time, the Mutual Network presents a panel discussion of that most recent and startling development. We'll now introduce the members of that panel. From Washington, we have William Hillman of Collier's Magazine, Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst, and Fulton Lewis, Jr., well-known Washington commentator. Are you gentlemen all on hand down there? We are. It's Bill Hillman checking in. This is Fulton Lewis checking in. And Charles Hodges. And here in New York, we have Cecil Brown, author and foreign correspondent, and Leo Chern, well-known economist. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we're just about back where we started around midnight last night. What do you say about that? We certainly are, and of course, uh, uh, although we are extremely puzzled, it seems to me that most of the people in the streets of New York have accepted the surrender as a fact. It's hard on our nerves, but it uh, appears that they they are are not bothered by this most recent confusion. I think uh, one of the most puzzling factors is uh, why the uh, Japanese are stalling for this time. Uh, Is there any observation uh, from Washington on that? Well, uh, this is Charles Hodges. It seems to me that uh, this is a kind of Pearl Harbor diplomacy from Japan all over again. I frankly think that uh, we made a mistake when we didn't put a time limit on an ultimatum. Uh, You must remember in the Orient that if you are a conqueror, you have to act like a conqueror. What kind of a persuader can we use now? Another atomic bomb? Uh, I suppose that that's the alternative unless we want to wait upon the Supreme One's uh, pleasure in Tokyo. This is Fulton Lewis speaking. From what I've heard around here today, in the last hour, there is about as much annoyance and irritation and and, uh, general upset nerves in the government as there is anywhere in the world present time. They're thoroughly put out. They're thoroughly annoyed. After all... uh, the Japanese lied in the beginning about when they received this, uh, this original ultimatum. Lied by 12 hours. Now, the fact of the matter is, as of the present time, the, uh, the ultimatum has been in the Japanese hands for about 70 hours at least. In that time, they certainly had an opportunity to make up for it. I rather doubt that an atomic bomb will be dropped without a warning. I rather feel that on this occasion, they will uh, give them a very few hours, uh, state that unless... The answer is forthcoming and in our hands, and unless it's the right answer, by a certain time, down they come. Uh, Fulton, this is Chern, New York. Yeah, Leo. I'm inclined to go along with your your feeling that the irritation uh, that is now being felt will play a very substantial part in, in what's happening, and as a matter of fact, that irritation leads me to believe that there's a little more than just a runaround in the, in the events that have happened within the last 24 hours. I feel pretty sure that Japan must be aware of the irritation and irritation that's rapidly becoming anger as a result of a series of what now seem to be lies. I believe the Japanese government may be reflecting to a certain extent a helplessness, a tug of war within the cabinet that is resulting in announcements and conflicting statements being made that are confusing us, perhaps uh, as confused as they are at this moment. Uh, This is Brown in New York. There's one point which uh, seems to me needs clarification, and that is that Presidential Secretary Charlie Ross uh, announced that the uh, Jap legation in Bern uh, did receive cables, but they were not the, the, uh, the, they did not contain the answer that the whole world was waiting for. That's correct, uh, Cecil, and it's a very important... 
But there, there is this, this one point. Uh, so far as we know, it has not been stated what those uh, cables contained. Now, is it at all possible in the uh, circles in Washington that uh, the, the coded cables may have contained some sort of a Japanese offer? Uh, this is Bill Hillman speaking. Uh, personally, I think there may be uh, a remote possibility, nevertheless a possibility to be considered, that there may have been a request for further clarifications of the terms that we have offered them. Now, that's a remote possibility, but we've got to keep that in mind. Well, let's be more specific than that, Bill. Uh, no reason why we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't say that that has come to us from a, a usually reliable source here, but it is unconfirmed, and we can't confirm it. That's right. In other words, there is a feeling in certain high diplomatic circles that uh, that may be one of the uh, explanations. Uh, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to ask uh, all of you in Washington this one question. I wonder whether you can shed any light on it. This is Sharon, New York. And the question is, do you have any idea or any information whether the Domai News Agency broadcasts, which were beamed to the United States within the last 14 hours, whether those broadcasts are any, uh, under any circumstances available to the Japanese people themselves? No, they first, uh, the first broadcast that was picked up uh, saying that uh, the Japanese government would accept this uh, Potsdam Declaration was beamed in English to the United States. Well, here's why I asked, Bill. For example, that broadcast that spoke of the mobs crowding the bridge outside the Emperor's palace and weeping at the insufficiency of their effort. Uh, I just wonder whether the entire incident isn't a, uh, a figment of a broadcaster's imagination. You see, we've been relying so much on, on the stories of the feeling of surrender or the feeling of defeat when that feeling itself may still be a figment of imagination. Well, as a matter of fact, Leon, as it now stands, we haven't been relying so much, we've been relying entirely. That's all we have to stand on at well, the present time, what we have out of Domine. Fulton, this much, I think, should be said for ourselves. I think we deserve a, a, a little compliment for the caution that was struck in all of these discussions uh, since the middle of this morning. Uh, we have not thus far gone out, with, uh, gone out with quite the enthusiasm that is being demonstrated in, in Times Square below us at this moment. They just refuse to accept any caution. Has there been any uh, demonstration like that down in Washington, man? None whatsoever. Washington is absolutely dead. There are perhaps 50 or 60 people across the street from the White House in Lafayette Square. There is no demonstration of any kind, no tooting of whistles, no parades, no excitement. The otherwise in the crowds of reporters in the White House executive offices, you never know that any, this was other than just August the 14th. That's right. This is Bill Hillman. Uh, th this city is the calmest, uh, most uh, cold city in, in the United States today. They're calmly waiting. And you will recall that I stated this morning that the Army and Navy officials are waiting and prepared for any sneak treachery at all. In other words, they're taking this in a very cold-blooded way. There's the feeling up here that uh, the American public is so aggravated and so worked up over these recent developments that uh, about the only thing that could put them at ease would be a possible statement from the president. Do you gentlemen believe there's any possibility that such a statement might be forthcoming? I don't believe there is. This is Fulton speaking. I don't believe there is. I don't believe it's necessary. This is Bill Hillman speaking. Isn't there the possibility, though, uh, as a roundabout way of making that sort of statement, that a very short, uh, an ultimatum ex giving a very short deadline may not be forthcoming this afternoon, or do you believe that we will still continue to wait? Well, Leo, that is purely my speculation. That is not any inside information from anybody. It was my speculation, and just from general talk, 
that uh, you hear among officials and uh, the general attitude, the irascible, uh, out-of-patience attitude that, uh, well, said time and time again, well, uh, we've waited long enough. Something's got to be done. Uh, Fulton, this is Cecil in New York. Yeah. Uh, do you have, uh, have you encountered any speculation as to what may have been contained in this Japanese request for further information? Well, that just goes back to what, uh, to what Bill Hillman just told you. Uh, the information that we received from a source that is high and reliable, but is totally unconfirmed. We have, we've tried to get confirmation of it and cannot get it. Let me impress that was that the long-coded message from Tokyo to Switzerland contained uh, a request from Japan for further clarification. Isn't that correct, Bill? That's right. It was uh, absolutely unconfirmed, but it, it came from so authentic a source that it could not be ignored, and that's the reason I brought this up in, on the air today. This is Cecil Brown in New York. Well, the only point which would need clarification then would be uh, Secretary Burns' uh, note uh, uh, specifying uh, the position of the emperor, that he would be subservient to our orders, since all other points of the Potsdam ultimatum had been accepted uh, by Japan. Uh, Cecil, uh, as Bill Hillman, a uh, question, of course, that may have been asked uh, is uh, some, uh, some practical details about delivery of uh, ships or uh, where officers are to go for surrender and that sort of thing. Well, Bill, I'm going to stick my neck out with no sources of information at all. This is Churn, just to identify the neck that stuck out, and say that I think the capping irony of all may have occurred uh, in, the, in the message that was received by the Swiss legation. Uh, legation. Uh, I believe there's a possibility that that message was a protest over our use of the atom bomb. In other words, I'm accepting the Swiss statement quite literally, that it had nothing to do with the subject the world has been waiting for. And I believe that the, there's a good possibility the message was a protest against our action rather than a surrender to our, to, to our force. A protest on the part of Switzerland, you mean? No, no, a protest on the part of the Japanese government transmitted through Switzerland to the United States protesting against our use of the atom bomb. We're just wondering if you men have Charles Hodges tied up down there. We have well, I'm getting hard. ready to break in there on this right. uh, protest matter. I uh, think that we have to recognize there's a pattern back of this whole Japanese setup. It's time to take a look at the calendar, what's gone on, and particularly uh, to go back to that idea as to whether we know what's uh, really cooking in Japan. We may be fed a complete phony picture at this point, and my feeling is that this is all for the Western record, and that behind this screen of delay, we are going to get a considerable diplomatic joke. I can't help feeling that this is part of laying plans for the new phase of the war against foreigners, which the Japanese have been waging since the 1600s, when they rebuffed the first foreign effort to get into Japan and went into retirement for over 200 years. Then we drove them out into the open again, and they went off to world conquest. We've got to recognize that these Japanese have been bred on one idea. Okay. I'd like to ask Cecil Brown, uh, after all, Cecil and, uh, and Charlie Hodges here know the Japanese and know them well. I don't. I don't know their reactions. Uh, this business of face is a strange thing to me. Well, you're uh, well off for not knowing them. Second <laughs> <laughs> that. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask whether it is your idea that uh, in this delay, uh, apropos of what Charlie has just said, that in this delay is a deliberate military trick uh, not to surrender at all, but to lead us into some kind of a trap, or whether you mean 
that they do intend to surrender, but with such qualifications and such uh, uh, circumlocution uh, 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 that uh, they'll be in a position to carry on, despite their defeat, an economic or an internal war against foreigners in the future. I think it's a combination of both, Fulton. It's quite possible that the Japanese are massing their, their uh, remaining strength at, in the air and at sea for a series of uh, kamikaze attacks. It's also quite possible that the Japanese have needed more time to organize their underground activities, to uh, issue orders to their secret societies, because we all know that this, uh, the defeat of Japan has come far sooner than, not, than they expected. I know that when I was in Singapore, they, the Japanese there in roundabout ways said that their intention was to fight a 10-year war, to win a quick victory and then build fighter aircraft and sit back and wait for us to try to beat them back. Their theory, theory was that we would get tired of fighting a war and make a peace. Now, all their, their defeat has come almost overnight, in a sense, and it's quite possible they have not prepared their long-range program. This is Hodges. I'd associate myself with you, Cecil, in that. There just isn't any question that the Japanese look upon this as a possible armistice, but simply stopping the struggle for a second or two in world history. Precisely what the Army and Navy have been warning about. Well, gentlemen, I'm sorry, but time is up. There's much more to talk about on this forum, particularly since none of us know right now where we are going. Our panel participants have been William Hillman of Colliers, Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst, and Fulton Lewis, Jr., well-known Washington commentator, speaking from Washington. And from New York, Cecil Brown, author and foreign correspondent, and Leo Chern, executive secretary of the Research Institute of America. Tom Slater speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Paula Stone, Phil Bredow Show with Bing Crosby, a special guest, will follow station identification. Cedric Foster will be at 71 on the dial at 2 o'clock with an analysis of the latest news. Because of the rapid developments in the news, WOR will continue to interrupt all regularly scheduled broadcasts to bring you important bulletins as they are received in the WOR newsroom. WOR, New York. Cremel Shampoo and Cremel Hair Tonic present Paula Stone, Phil Brito, and Paula's guest in Hollywood, one of the truly great figures of the entertainment world, Bing Crosby. We think it's a good show. Won't you sit down and listen? I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still How do you do? This is Tom Shirley speaking for Cremel Shampoo and Cremel Hair Tonic. Here at the east end of the network, Phil Brito has a couple of songs ready to sing with Doc Whipple's orchestra. And due west in Hollywood, Paula Stone is thinking up questions to fire at the old groaner Bing Crosbow. Crosbow? Aren't you being a bit familiar, old boy? Well, I don't think so, Phil. When Marilyn Maxwell paid us a visit, she called him Crosbow. That's right, so she did, Tom. <laughs> and not only that, but just think of some of the names Bob Hope has given Bing from coast to coast. At various times, Sharp Snars has called Bing loud larynx, gravel gullet, and eagle ears. Why, that's pure slander. If I were Bing, I'd cut Bob off without a mention. I'd make him buy his publicity. Well, anyway, Phil, since Bing is Paula's guest today, what are you going to do by way of celebration? 
Well, I can sing a couple of songs from the picture that Bing has just produced, the great John L. now showing at your local theater. Oh, fine. The first one is a lovely new hit, A Friend of Yours. Just say that I'm a friend of yours And maybe they won't get why And if they see us together Brush the dreams from my eyes. I'll tell my heart it mustn't sing the song of Just say that I'm a friend of yours That you happen to meet some beauty advice from some of the world's most divinely beautiful girls, those gorgeous Powers models who are famous for their lovely hair. Powers girls have discovered there's nothing better than cremel shampoo to wash their hair. They declare its cleansing, beautifying action is simply remarkable. Cremel shampoo not only thoroughly cleanses hair and scalp, but leaves hair just gleaming with natural brilliant highlights and a silken sheen that lasts for days. Cremel shampoo positively contains no harsh chemicals. Instead, its beneficial oil base helps keep hair from becoming dry or brittle. Buy a bottle of Cremel shampoo at any drug counter. Results should delight you. And now the stage is set for a cross-country radio jump. We take you now to Paula Stone in Hollywood, California. Hello, everybody. You know, we've had so many exciting moments on these Kreml broadcasts when such stars as James Cagney, Betty Grable, Judy Garland, Ida Lupino, and so many other world-famous celebrities appeared here to visit with us. But today really rings a bell with the nation's number one singing star, Bing Crosby. Oh, no, Paula, you got the wrong guy. Oh, not number one singing star? No. Oh, well, all right. Uh, this year's Academy Award winner, Bing Crosby. Well, it was a war year, Paula. All the good men were away. <laughs> You're off the beam, though. You're not in there yet. Oh, goodness. Still off. Keep pitching. Right. Uh, how about uh, racehorse owner? Uh. <clears throat> You're getting warm. <laughs> oh, I know. How is this? 
producer of that smash hit, The Great John L., Bing Crosby. Paula, you have just rung a bell. I did. I shall answer roll call now. <laughs> well, look, my roll call includes a heap of questions, Bing, and most of them are about The Great John L. That's nice. <laughs> Come right in. Well, it's really such an exciting picture, and, you know, I was particularly interested in Greg McClure, who plays the title role. But how did McClure, as an unknown, win such an important part, Bing? Oh, Paula, we were a first picture for our company. We had no players under contract, and the big studios are very reluctant about giving you Clark Gable or somebody like that, so we uh, we just decided we'd build us a new star. I'd seen this boy, Greg McClure, on the set while Hope and I were making Road to Utopia. Very impressive-looking guy, loaded with muscles, mm-hmm. so I kept him in mind. It's a good potential picture bet. Well, he certainly turned out to be just that, and being in compiling material for the great John L., which is, after all, the story of John L. Sullivan... You must have unearthed many exciting tales of the early days of fisticuffs. Well, he was a colorful guy. Uh-huh. And uh, really a legend with the old-timers. We got lots of mail and with information and stories and anecdotes about uh, Sullivan, most of which we'd already used in the picture. But I heard one story that was uh, kind of good for a chuckle. It seems that uh, Jim Corbett, after he'd licked to Sullivan for the title, was on a vaudeville tour, which took him to Boston. And Boston was Sullivan's hometown. They loved him dearly there. Uh-huh. After the show at the reception, he met a little old Irish biddy. A little lady, and uh, he was introduced to her as the man who licked John L. Sullivan. And she looked up at him. She says, Faith, you had little to do, didn't you, licking a fine man like that? <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's very cute. Well, you know, with your many hobbies, I mean, running from your interest in inventors to your interest in the ponies, to say nothing of your picture work and overseas tours, I should think adding the title of producer to all the rest would make you a king of Superman. <laughs> How did you manage it all? I'm not sure I manage it any too well, but if I do, it's because I'm lucky enough, Paula, to be associated with clever people, people with ability. They do the work, and I stand by. Oh, listen take to the, the man. Bows, listen to the, the man. Well, all right. <laughs> Have you any production plans for the movie following the great John L.? It's up to the public. If uh, they receive the picture well and we're left with any loot, we might continue to make another one or try. Well, I certainly hope you do. And I do hope that all our movie fan listeners from coast to coast will make it a point to see the great John L. Golly, it's it's really exciting, packed with interest, particularly those fight scenes, Bing. Do you like the fight oh, scenes? Oh, they were wonderful. Well, those were directed or staged by Johnny Indrasano. He's former middleweight champion, welterweight champion, and a Boston born good fighter and... I think he staged uh, three or four fights in the picture that are as good, if not better, than anything's ever been done on film before. And particularly amusing and interesting is Sullivan's fight in Paris with the French champion of the La Savat. Oh, yeah. That's fight with the feet and uh, oh, that a lot of laughs in there. We got a ballet dancer named Semenov to play this Frenchman, and uh, he really flits around. <laughs> oh, he was wonderful, and Greg McClure was great in those scenes, too. Good. Uh, yeah. Bing, a moment ago you mentioned uh, McClure on your Road to Utopia movie. Now, there's another picture the fans are dying to see. <laughs> when does this road uh, take place, and where does it take you and Bob Hope? Well, it ought to be out soon, Paula. It concerns Alaska during the gold rush days. Uh-huh. Yeah. It may be the last of the road pictures, though. Really? Yeah, Hope is getting a little old for oh, me. Oh, I see. It's no longer believable, Paula, that he can win the girl, and then if that's not credible, we have no plot. Yes, I see. He's reached, he's reached a point in life, Bob, has where a cup of hot tea rests in, <laughs> so... Getting a little <laughs> saggy, a little beat. <laughs> Oh, these road pictures you do with Bob, they're certainly favorites, Bing. You've got to admit that. We love making them. Oh, well, of course. Uh, Bing, do you listen to Bob Hope every Tuesday night on the radio? You do, don't you? Well, no, I'd like to, Paula, but he comes on Tuesday night the same time as the Pomona Frost warnings, and I oh. must hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want to miss that, I can see. Well, uh, Bing, you know, of all the pictures, I, I believe the most eagerly awaited one is the Bells of St. Mary's with you and that other Oscar winner, Ingrid Bergman. 
Can you give us some advanced word about this film? I mean, is it on the order of going my way? It concerns a priest and a nun, but the story is a great deal different. I think it has a little more heart in it, uh, and we hope some humor. I think Leo McCary deserves a lot of credit. He's very brave to attempt to... Another picture of the same type as Going My Way, which was quite successful. And oh, of course. Of course, everybody will be uh, have dead aim on him. If he doesn't do as well in directing this as he did on Going My Way, he'll be, he'll be censured. Well, the Hollywood grapevine Working with uh, Ingrid Bergman was a great pleasure, though, Paul. Oh, She's a I wonderful know. woman and, as you know, a great talent. She's had some sensational portrayals to her credit in the past, but I think in this film... She probably does one of her greatest jobs. I, I hear you, you both outdo yourself. <laughs> I just walk around, stand. Oh yes, just, I know. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, I wish we could give go her on. plenty of room. You got to give you her do? plenty of room. Uh, Let her turn on. She can do it. Well, I wish we could go on talking about your pictures, particularly your first producing venture, the great John L. But unfortunately, being time is sneaking up on us. It's sneaking up on me too, Paul. I sneaked off between shots, Paramount lot to get over here this morning, so I guess I'd better get my beat body back there <laughs> immediately. Well, before you go, Bing, can you wait and hear Phil Brito do the other number from the great John L.? Oh, I'd love to. The tenor or bad tenor? <laughs> oh, fine. You just listen in and see. I and can't before listen. the broadcast leaves the studio, I do want to thank you so much for this wonderful visit. You are wonderful to have me over, Paul. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Loved it. And, and now this is Paula Stone saying goodbye to Bing Crosby and back to New York. Thanks, Paul and Bing. It was a swell interview. It really was. And as Paula says, I'd like to sing the song from Great John L. When You Were Sweet Sixteen. Sweet 16. Wow, what a memory. I bet you celebrate it by taking your gal for a ride on a horse car. You're going back a little too far there, thrush throat. However, I'll admit that it was a bit before the era of those luscious powers models who use cremel shampoo to wash their hair. And ladies, if you do what they do, you can be sure you're buying one of the most beautifying shampoos there is. Powers girls are famous for their lovely hair, and they know what to use to wash it. Because cremel shampoo leaves hair just glistening with natural glossy luster and shining highlights that lasts for days. Get a bottle today, Cremel Shampoo, K-R-E-M-L, Cremel Shampoo from your drug counter. Well, Tom, who's Paula going to bring to her Hollywood microphone next Thursday? Another star of the movies, Lewis Hayward. Mm, Marine Officer Hayward, eh? Yeah, and what song is she going to sing for Lou? Well, the first one has just got to be romantic, so here it is. If I love you... And here's Phil Brito's second song for Thursday. I'll be down to get you in a taxi, honey. You better be ready about half past eight. 
Now, dearie, don't be late. I want to be there when the band starts to play. Oh, that's a real foot stomper. So till Thursday, when Paula's guest in Hollywood will be Lewis Hayward, on behalf of Kremel Shampoo and Kremel Hair Tonic, we say so long, friends. Remember, ladies, to tell the men in your family about Kremel Hair Tonic, how Kremel keeps dry, unruly summer hair neatly in place all day long, yet never leaves it plastered down or greasy-looking. Men, thank you for suggesting Kremel. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. For all the latest news as and when it happens, be sure to keep tuned to this station. It is now quarter to two. W.O.R. New York. The John J. Anthony program comes to you now by transcription. Is the sweetheart you married the husband you expected him to be? Has the war created new problems for you in your marriage? To answer these and other personal problems brought in by your friends and neighbors, Arid presents John J. Anthony, founder of the famed Marital Relations Institute, in a brand new program of daily sessions of kindly and helpful advice. Just as Mr. Anthony, by examples in this studio, is helping thousands of men and women solve their personal problems, Arid, too, is helping thousands to solve the important personal problem of underarm perspiration. Arid helps you avoid perspiration damage to clothes and safeguards friendships. Use Arid every day. It helps stop perspiration safely, and at the same time, Arid is a most effective deodorant. And now your friend and advisor, John J. Anthony, one of America's best-known counselors on human relations. By listening to Mr. Anthony's solution of the problems brought here by these people needing advice, perhaps you too can find happiness and contentment. It is with that thought in mind that these daily sessions were created. Mr. Anthony, are you ready for your first case? Quite ready, George. The first case is that of Miss C.A. All right, Miss, your prop... Did you say Miss C.A., George? C.A. All right, thank you. Uh, your problem, please. Come in. About two years ago, I met and fell in love and... Come in close, please. I met, fell in love, and became deeply involved with a man who had been recently discharged from the Army. After much persuasion on my part, we were married, and we opened a home on my money. Why did you have to persuade him? Didn't he want to get married? He said he's in no, no position to marry. When you say uh, you became deeply involved, do I gather that to mean that it would have been uh, exceedingly unwise for this man not to marry you? Yes. All right, go on, please. Go well, on, For a please. while, things ran smoothly, and we got along very well with one another. Uh-huh. And, uh, when... Oh, come then, now. Up until the time I expected my baby, he asked me to live with my mother until the baby came. Uh, he, too, lived with your mother? No, or he left. Just you alone? That's right. He lived at our apartment, and I went to live at my mother's. He lived at your apartment, and you went to reside with your mother. Why? He said that he was afraid to be left alone in the house with me if anything did happen. Well, that's novel at any rate, but go on. Go ahead, well, please. Well, after I gave birth to my baby, I moved near my mother because I was ill and needed her care. Mm-hmm. And then things were fine again. But then he... He came and told me that he had become deeply involved with another girl. Aha, uh -huh, I see. 
That couldn't have been the a reason that he might have wanted you to live with your mother while he remained at home. I think it was the reason. Mm. All right. Go on. And uh, he asked me to move in with my mother. And um, we did, I did move into my mother. You've told me that. Was this the second uh, time that you yes, returned to your mother? After I he became involved with this other person? Uh -huh. That's right. I see. All right. And when I asked him if he wanted a divorce, he said no, that the girl didn't mean anything to him, that he did want to stay with me and the baby. Mm-hmm. Then after a while, we both... He said that um, he moved in with me the second time to my mother's. I, uh, I don't mean to be facetious at all, madam. Believe me. I'm not trying to be humorous, but this man used a marriage license to get married, didn't he? He didn't use a commutation ticket. I have seldom... I have heard thousands of these situations. Uh, this is the third or fourth time uh, that you changed residence with and without your husband in a period of how long? It was two years. It was the second time that I went to my mother with him. Mm -hmm. All right, go on, please. And uh, he said that I, we moved in there against my advice. I didn't think, I knew that he couldn't live with my mother. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards he told me that he felt very depressed and very unhappy. About what? About living with my mother. I see, all right. And he went back to his mother's house to live, and he still didn't ask me for any divorce. Uh-huh. And then I did a foolish thing. I went to the girl and asked her if she meant anything to my husband and whether or not she wanted to marry him. Mm-hmm. That if she did, would she help me get my divorce? I see. And she told me that she wouldn't, um, um, wouldn't help me because she felt it was none of her business, what, do, what my husband and I decided to do. I see. Then I spoke to her father. I thought he might be able to persuade her to see things my way. Mm -hmm. And he said that he didn't care whether or not I dragged his daughter to court because she wasn't any good. That was the father's opinion yes. of his own daughter. Mm -hmm. Now, All my right. problem is this. Shall I wait <clears throat> until he decides whether or not he wants a divorce or wants to come back, or shall I seek a divorce? I see. In other words, he is, uh, at this particular point in your life, he isn't living with you no. anymore, huh? Uh, has your husband... Uh, demanded a divorce, or does he still feel, as he did some time ago, that divorce was a relatively unimportant matter and that he would prefer to remain with you and the child? Now, what's his he, attitude he at this says moment? He's asked me to leave him alone until he can decide one way or another. I see. And uh, you'd like me to tell you whether or not I believe you ought to give him that time or whether or not you ought to get a divorce, huh? That's right. How old are you? 21. How old is your husband? 23. 23. Well, I'm not going to recommend a divorce. However, I am not going to recommend that you live with him either. You see, you didn't marry a man of 21. You married a grown-up boy of 21. He is, um, well, he doesn't understand life. He doesn't know what marriage is. Uh, he only married you because very likely you threatened to cause some difficulty in his life. So it was the easiest thing for him to do to marry you. Uh, he didn't think at that time that marriage uh, carries with it social, economic, and other responsibilities. These responsibilities he has uh, forgotten all about. Now, I don't think that he's going to awaken to them almost momentarily. He's not that kind of a man. Proof of that is his, his, his mode of living since he's married you. <laughs> he became involved with another young woman. Uh, he does want a divorce. He doesn't want a divorce. He does want to live with you. He doesn't want to live with you. He's uh, shuttled you between homes as though you were a chattel rather than a wife. I did say, though, that I don't recommend a divorce. I recommend your living apart from this man and having him support you 
and your child until such time as he has become sufficiently mature to know what a home is, what a wife is, and what a child is. Go ahead. Well, he has been sending me five dollars a week for the baby. I mean, I haven't taken him to court or anything like that mm -hmm. because his mother didn't want me to. She felt that uh, I really did mean something to him and that he w would come back eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, wait until that time uh, comes about. And when this uh, prize package that you married, I am not attempting to be sarcastic at all, but this man has an exaggerated opinion of his own value and his own worth, believe me. Not only that, but all the women in his life, including his wife, of course, his mother too, have an exaggerated idea of this man's value. It's untrue. There are other men, far more important men than this boy that you married. You stay away from him, and when he does finally make up his mind, that he wants to come back to you. Be very, very careful about taking him back. Make certain that he knows what marriage is. Make certain that he knows the responsibilities entailed in that marriage. And make sure that the love you think you now have for him still is in your heart. Well, Go I mean, on. Here's another part. You see, my mother-in-law wants to see the baby, and I have been bringing, bringing the baby to her weekends, but every time I go, he's been there, and uh -huh. we've ended up in an argument. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know whether to continue bringing the baby yes, to her or... Yes, yes, I, I think you ought to bring the child uh, to your in-law's home. As a matter of fact, if the, if the quarrels between you and your husband, when you visit there, become uh, too severe, have your in-laws come to visit you if they want to see the child. Certainly, I would not deny the grandparents the right to see the child. I don't think that concerns your husband. I think it's only a human action on your part. I would do it if I were you. But don't take him back until you're certain that he's the kind of a man you had hoped he would be when you married him. Good luck to you. you. Friends, I'll take up the next problem in just a moment. But now I want you to listen closely to a problem that concerns all of us. You know, friends, some women just don't... Wait a minute, George. You're always going on about women, telling how they should use arid and everything. Well, how about men? Well, how about them? Well, I've heard of businessmen in offices who offend with the odor of underarm perspiration, and I've been near them in movies. After all, men are human, too. And you could very easily persuade them to get a jar of arid if you tell them what an effective deodorant it is. Right. Men, arid is a snow-white, greaseless, and stainless antiseptic cream that safely helps stop underarm perspiration and odor. And arid doesn't irritate the skin. It'll keep you from staining your shirt. And it'll keep you from offending others. More men and women use arid than any other deodorant because it does its job so well. Arid is on sale at drug stores and department stores. And it's very inexpensive insurance for keeping clean and dry. Very nice. So, men and women both, remember to use Arid Cream Deodorant daily. Buy the economical 39-cent jar. That's Arid, A-R-R-I-D. And now, here is Mr. Anthony's next case. Thank you, George. Friends, I have a letter that I'd like to read. It comes to me from Indiana, and it's signed Mrs. G.F. It says, I'm a widow and stay at home with my parents who are both old. Father of 70, mother 65. I also have a son overseas for the past 18 months who is married and has a 15-month-old baby. Eight months ago, my daughter-in-law came over to the house and my mother tried to tell her what to do about the running of her business. They had words and now my daughter-in-law no longer comes to the house. Someone wrote my son about this and he's terribly hurt to think that they don't speak. I'm good to my parents, also good to my son's wife, and have done everything possible to smooth this over. But my mother and daughter-in-law are both stubborn, and as a result, I'm torn from side to side. My mother is old, 
and thinks I should take her part. But I can't do that as I want to be fair with both, and I feel that since my son is overseas, he expects me to stick to his little family. I'd like to have your advice, the writer continues, uh, what do you think it is best for me to do? I want to do the right thing by both of them. Well, madam, uh, a great many people have the same uh, sort of difficulties on occasion. Uh, your difficulties are heightened by the fact that your son happens to be overseas at the moment. I don't think that it's a question of siding with either your mother or your daughter-in-law. As a matter of fact, I don't see why they should quarrel about these things. Your daughter-in-law doesn't live with your mother, and uh, she's going to run her life as she sees fit, and very likely she's not going to take direction from uh, her grandmother. Insofar as you're concerned, I think you ought to be pleasant to both your daughter-in-law and your mother. Now, why either one of these women, the old woman, 65, and the youngster, should demand that you take sides is something that I, I don't understand. I think you ought to be kind to both. That's the wisest way to do things and let your daughter-in-law run her life in her own way and not have mother interfere. Good luck to all of you. Friends, I'd like to help all of you listeners as I try to help the people that come here to the studio and those that write to me from all over the country. If you have a personal problem and need understanding and sympathetic guidance, these daily sessions have been created to fulfill that need. I think that we've been successful in helping thousands find greater happiness. Why don't you sit down now and write to me? State your problem in full detail and address it to John J. Anthony and care of the station to which you are now listening. Don't hesitate. I shall keep your name a confidential secret and never reveal your identity. And now here's something you should know about. Waiter! Waiter! Phil, did you ever see such poor service? I'm going to call the manager. Take it easy, Walt. What's mostly wrong is your grouch. I'm sorry, Phil, but my digestion is so upset. What you may need for your poor digestion is something that works after nature's own order. Try Carter's Little Liver Pills. Good advice. When your digestion is upset and you feel headachy and irritable, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. You see, each day, nature normally produces about two pints of a vital digestive juice to help digest your food. If nature fails, your food may remain undigested leaving you headachy and irritable. To feel cheerful and happy again, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. They increase the flow of this vital digestive juice quickly, often in as little as 30 minutes, and you're on the road to feeling better. Don't depend on artificial aids to counteract indigestion when Carter's Little Liver Pills aid digestion after nature's own order. Take Carter's Little Liver Pills as directed. Get them at any drugstore, only 25 cents. Join us tomorrow at this same time when we again present John J. Anthony, one of America's best-known counselors on human relations. George Putnam speaking. The John J. Anthony program was presented transcribed from the Mutual Studios in New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. Captain Eddie! Who defied death a hundred times. Captain Eddie! Who inspired the faith of men. And the enduring love of a woman. See Captain Eddie, starring Fred McMurray at the Roxy Theater, now playing on stage in person, Phil Silvers and Carl Ravaza. W-O-R, New York. 2 p.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulover Watch Time. Bulover urges, hold war bonds. Cedric Foster will follow in a moment with an analysis of the news.
one of the many important news broadcasts presented over WOR every day in an effort to bring the news to the public as the news is made. May we remind you of the programs to be heard over the station today. At 4 o'clock, it's John Gambling. Then Paul Schubert, well-known author and commentator, will broadcast his informed observations on world affairs at 6 o'clock. 15 minutes of news with Van Deventer, as newscaster, comes on at half past 6. From Washington, Fulton Lewis Jr. brings his interpretation of world events at 7 o'clock. At half past 7, it's time for Arthur Hale. At 8, Frank Singizer. And at 9 o'clock, it's Gabriel Heater. There'll be an overseas report at quarter past 10. Van Deventer returns with more news at 11 o'clock. The Herald Tribune News at quarter past 11. Because of the rapid developments in the news, we advise you to keep tuned to WOR. Now, here's Cedric Foster. This is Cedric Foster speaking to you from Boston. And after an all-night vigil here in our newsrooms in Boston, we can report to you that the situation now is exactly the same as it was at 2 o'clock in the morning insofar as diplomatic negotiations are concerned. At 2 o'clock this morning, the Domei News Agency, by means of the Tokyo Radio, announced to the world that the Japanese were going to accept the Potsdam Ultimatum. The actual words of the Domei News Agency, as transmitted from Tokyo, were as follows, and I quote it, It is learned that an imperial rescript accepting the Potsdam proclamations will be forthcoming soon. That's the end of the quotation. It was later announced uh, that the Japanese government's reply to the Allied surrender note was on its way to burn Switzerland. Then came a succession of events which have left the radio and newsmen trying to cover this historic uh, event, punch drunk and groggy. The first thing of importance was that the Domain News Agency made a broadcast in the Japanese language which was beamed to Japanese people in Japanese-occupied countries of Asia. This broadcast warned the Japanese to stand by for an announcement of the utmost importance which would be delivered at 8 o'clock this morning and for another announcement that would be made at 9. This was considered as highly significant and as a matter of fact it still is because this statement was the first that had come from the Japanese homeland which might be interpreted as a forerunner of the news of the intended surrender, that is, to the Japs themselves. And when that hour of 8 o'clock finally rolled around, the Domei News Agency transmitted a message, not in voice but by means of wireless, to Japanese editors in occupied countries in Asia. This message, which was on a hold-for-release basis, told the Japanese uh, editors that the Emperor of Japan was gravely concerned regarding the calamity which he said had been brought about by the United States. The message in wireless continued with the statement that the editors were instructed to stand by for an important announcement which would be broadcast not by wireless but by voice. That announcement, Tokyo declared, would come at noon tomorrow, Tokyo time, which would be 11 o'clock this evening, Eastern War Time. In the meantime, a series of bulletins had been coming through from the Swiss in Bern. The Swiss declared through their capital that the Japanese note had been received in Bern and that it was an extremely long document. Because of the length of that note, it was said that at least five hours would be required to decode it and that additional time would then be necessary to get the note to the United States. Apparently, the Japanese ministry in Switzerland was working on the assumption that this lengthy note, that is, if they were honest, was the Jap reply to the Allied ultimatum. Either they were working on that assumption, or the Swiss government was, or they both were. In any event, there was repeated news that the Japanese note was in the Swiss capital, and that when it had been decoded, it would be sent to Washington for dissemination as Washington saw fit. 
These repeated statements tied in, of course, with the Japanese broadcasts that Domei had put out, namely that the Japs had accepted the ultimatum and that their acceptance had been sent to Switzerland. The combination of these two gave rise to the perfectly natural assumption that the war was over, even though it was not officially ended. As a matter of fact, as I will explain to you in a moment, there is still considerable reason to believe that it is coming very quickly to a close. Shortly after noon today, Presidential Secretary Charlie Ross called radio and press men into a conference at the White House. This conference came just after a member of the Swiss legation had arrived at the Chief Executive's mansion on Pennsylvania Avenue. The expected news of the surrender from an official point of view did not develop at this conference. To the contrary, Mr. Ross announced that the Swiss government had informed him that the official Japanese reply to the Potsdam ultimatum had not yet been received in the Swiss capital at Bern. What was that lengthy message which was going to take five hours to decode? Well, that has not been revealed by the Japanese in Bern. Whatever it was, however, it was not Japan's acceptance of the Potsdam terms. It may have taken five hours to decode it, but it gave no answer to what the world is waiting so anxiously to hear, namely that the Japanese are going to lay down their arms. So that, apparently, is the situation up to the moment. The only thing that can be termed of an official nature is the Japanese Dome statement that Japan has accepted the terms and that that acceptance is on its way to Switzerland. When it will get to Switzerland is anyone's guess. But as we attempt to untangle that twisted skein of official and unofficial reports, it would seem now that the Japanese are waiting possibly for a simultaneous announcement by themselves to their own people and the Allied government's announcement, or as nearly simultaneous as the Japs can make it. They can accomplish this by managing to deliver their note of acceptance just about the same time that they will talk in the Japanese language to the people of Japanese-occupied Asia. There still is some confusion as to whether the Japs have told their own people, that is, the people living in Japan proper, there's some confusion as to whether those people have been told of the impending disaster. It does not appear that they have been told so in so many hard and fast words. There are two factors in connection with this, however. The Japanese press for days past have been preparing the people for the defeat of the empire and for the collapse of Japan's dream of worldwide conquest. They have done this through the medium of editorials. These editorials have all been of the same vein. They've called upon the Japanese to stand by the emperor and no matter what happens to obey the mandates of Hirohito implicitly. They have literally hammered this into the Japanese heads time and time again. They've emphasized the fact that Japan stands right now at the most critical moment in her history of thousands of years. As these facts were being driven into the Japanese brain, and as editors in Japanese-occupied Asia were told to stand by for their momentous announcement at 11 o'clock tonight, the Japanese home islands have been flooded with millions of leaflets from American and possibly from British aircraft, but certainly from United States planes. These leaflets have told the Japanese people of the Japanese government's intention to lay down Japan's arms as announced by the Dome News Agency. The Department of Psychological Warfare has done an excellent job operating with these planes out of the Mariana Islands. And it's the same sort of work that General MacArthur's similar Department of Psychological Warfare carried out from Manila in connection with the Russian entry into this war. 
Just a few minutes ago, you heard a roundtable discussion of Mutual's news analysts talking to you from New York and from Washington. Fulton Lewis and Bill Hillman pointed out that high government officials in Washington are getting pretty fed up with this entire deal. It smacks too much of former Japanese actions of so sorry, please, and we don't understand, but please believe that our intentions are entirely honorable. It carries with it a sort of Pearl Harbor-ish feeling that we don't know what these Far Eastern enemies are doing, that they may be giving us what we can term the well-known run around the mulberry bush. In this connection, it seems as though it should be borne in mind that the Japanese and ourselves are as far apart as the North Pole is from the South in all of our codes of ethics. The Japanese simply don't think in the same manner as we do. They adhere to no standards except those which are dictated by the exigency of the moment, dictated to save their own necks and at the same time to destroy the necks of their opponents. There was some feeling in Washington today that the long Japanese note which was received in Switzerland, the note which was thought to contain the Japanese acceptance of surrender but which did not, there is a feeling that this note might possibly contain a Japanese request for further clarification of the Potsdam terms. Just what purpose this would serve, just how this would help Japan is difficult to see unless it is another attempt by the Japanese ruling class to get out from under or to continue the war under other conditions. Certainly it is a breathing space in the prosecution of the war for Japan. Allied attacks, particularly from American bombers and from the United States Navy, have dropped off. There is no report of activity of these planes and ships late today. I have, however, a message which has come through from Guam, a dispatch which reads, and I read it to you now, between 950 and 1,000 superforts and fighter planes smashed heavily in dreaded fire, demolition, and strafing attacks against Japanese war industries yesterday and early today while the world awaited the Emperor's answer to allied surrender demands. About 6,000 tons of bombs were dropped on six military targets in the last 24 hours, Strategic Air Force headquarters announced today. And this made that period one of the busiest days in the history of the Air Force. It is quite possible that when we get right down to it, the Russians can teach us a great deal regarding the method of prosecuting a war. The Russians have only been in this show for about a week or so. I actually don't remember when they went into the picture after being up all night here in the newsroom. But anyway, it's about a week. The Russian armies are cutting into Manchuria in gigantic, swirling armored drives. They're said to be literally tearing the Asiatic soil apart. And as they move ahead, they're not talking about peace. They're not even thinking, apparently, with dealing with the Japs. The technicalities of such deals, of course, they have left to the United States as their representative. And it's the representative of all of the Allied powers. The Russians, however, can't help but give us the feeling that they're concerned with only one thing killing just as many Japs as they can as they press forward in Manchuria and Korea. Perhaps that's the better way. It certainly is the Russian way, and the Russians have learned many a bitter lesson in double-dealing from the Germans. They learned it, as a matter of fact, from the Japs 40 years ago at Port Arthur. The Russians have not got convenient memories. They have long and unforgetting memories. They may be trapped once in double-dealing, but they stand as a notable exception to Rudyard Kipling's statement that the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And our philosophy cries out against too great a belief 
in the lack of honor of any nation. Despite that fact, despite the fact that Japan dealt us a crushing blow at Pearl Harbor, we are still of the opinion, or we are now at any rate, that the Japs are down and out now, and as such, we ought to extend the hand of magnanimity to them. All of this, of course, does not stand up. I mean, if we abandon this theory, it doesn't stand up to the nth degree of our rigid interpretation of our philosophy. There might come a time, however, when we, we could consider the possibility of deviating from our code and not violate accepted standards. There comes a time when the only manner of fighting fire is by fire itself. This is Cedric Foster speaking to you from Boston. I'll be back with you tomorrow at the same time. Cedric Foster has been presented in his analysis of today's news from Boston. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Every afternoon, Monday through Friday at half past four, Dr. Walter H. Eddy conducts his Food and Home Forum, a half hour full of facts and figures about good things to eat and other interesting items about homemaking. You can hear Dr. Eddy this afternoon at half past four on the Food and Home Forum. W.O.R. New York. And I think that's it. You just heard a couple hours of W.O.R. on a Tuesday afternoon, August 14th, while we're waiting to see the end of World War II. Hope you enjoyed that. We're going to take a back to the automation system. I'm a little tired. So, with that, why don't we pick up the phone and join me, John, and Lori with Brian and Gary tomorrow. And then it should be Dr. Michael Beal after that. So, hope you enjoyed Patricia tonight. She thought she sounded great. Love Patricia very, very, very much. What a special person. She's in all our lives. What to have her with us. Anyway, uh, next Friday, on August 12th, 2016, we'll have a Paul Harvey Part 2. Interview with the author of a Paul Harvey book. Next weekend, August... Saturday the 13th, we'll play more any of the war, World War II. And then with that, on the 14th, be Perry Huntoon. So with that, may the good Lord Jesus Christ bless you, and this is Yesterday USA. Good morning, everybody, or good night.
Jaws Professional, One Friday Night Fa Filter, One Friday Night Fa Filter, Explore Pain, Folder Layout Pain, Shell Folder View, Items View Multi Alt F4, Alt Tab, Sound Forge Pro 11, Escape, Escape. Enter. Enter. Menu A, Leaving Menus, Data Window, Sound 1 Star, Save as Dialog, File Name colon, Sound 1, Edit, to set the value, Use the arrow keys or type the value, Alt plus N. S A T U R D A Y N I G H T 8 dash 6 dash 1 6 double I T 8 P A T R I C I A Save as type colon combo box wave left save enter data window type in text Alt page down, type a message, Alt control J, JAWS context menu, up Alt tab, leaving menus. Alt tab, Bill Bragg, Alt tab, Skype trademark, Alt F4, Bill Bragg, type Alt F4. Alt tab, Patricia from FL Home, Alt F4, Patricia from Alt tab, Skype trademark, Alt tab, Patricia from FL Home, Alt F4, Skype trademark, left bracket, Alt F4. Alt tab, replay radio, Alt tab, Skype trademark, left bracket, 37, right bracket, dash Walden, Alt F4, Skype trademark, left bracket, Alt F4. Alt tab, replay, Alt tab, Skype trade, Alt tab, Sound Forge Pro, 